Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, October 3rd, 843-661-0937. Our number, good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Rev. Good morning. I asked Josh yesterday a couple of questions about the things he's most concerned about. Kind of interesting, Josh. I read an article last night in, might have been the Wall Street Journal. No, they wouldn't have printed this. Might have been, um, I mean, the Wall Street Journal has advertisers and alignments and arrangements and, and associations with people whom keep them um, gainfully employed. So they wouldn't have written this. I can't think of, might have been Bloomberg. They're a little more edgy on financial matters than um, than the Wall Street Journal. But they had an article about young people and what they're concerned about. And we talked yesterday about the um, the two-tier justice system or the federal debt. And how many young Americans are just not that concerned about the federal debt because they don't under understand it. They don't, I mean, they, they just like, wow, okay. I'm, you know, my dad said we're spending a trillion dollars a year. We don't have, but life's pretty good for me. You know, I'm okay. Um, and, and it would be, it would be expected for young people to not know the long-term consequence. I mean, Munger and Buffett doesn't know. So why would we expect 25 your old kids to know, um, and I'm not being kids. I'm not saying that in a derogatory no, sense. You know that. I mean, I've got kids. Uh, two of my kids are older than you. <laughs> so um, all of y'all are kids as far as I'm concerned. And I would imagine to some of my um, older friends, I'd be still a kid, a young buck, so to speak. But um, but the article said that the, the dominant concern that young people have today in America, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly climate change, Oh, far more concerned about climate change than the fiscal abyss. Um, <laughs> How you know, do you think they came, just, came well, to they, that? They, they, they've been educated. They've educated. been trained. Yeah. They've been indoctrinated. They've been conditioned um, to believe this. And here's the, um, and I want to go back to the text, uh, excuse me, the email, excuse me, the Facebook post of a listener that said something's happening. Here, I wrote a word down this morning, and uh, it, it's defiance. And I think it's generation by generation. I think the the younger generation will be the last to become defiant. And by that, I mean there will be a moment in time that Josh's generation say, there's no way climate change is more dangerous than the federal debt. It, it, it won't be the moment you throw your, your, your cap in the air at your graduation ceremony. I mean, there's a world that lies ahead, and young people are so malleable and impressionable. And I was. I mean, we all were. I'll admit, um, I, you know, I went to college for a summer or semester, so it didn't have a big impact on my life. But my dad, I mean, we're all shaped and molded by something, right? You, I, the Grand Canyon. I mean, everybody, everything is shaped and molded or shaped and molded by influences. You know, um, some are very close and prominent. Some are a little bit distant and not quite as um as shaping and molding. Why does the Grand Canyon look like it does? Oh, water, you know, mm-hmm. erosion, uh, the, the world being the world, so to speak. And and I think when I read that, it, it's kind of interesting to me. Defiant. Remember that word? Because I think that's really what our Facebook poster slash listener um, is referring to. Now, that's my word. I don't know what word exclusively or specifically. And for those that didn't listen yesterday, um, we talked about 20 minutes about Gamecock and Tiger football. <laughs> Do have news today about the Gamecock 330 kick, which is about as good as it gets. Um, but the fair's in town. In Florida. Yeah, there, there will be parking uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Can I say that, Rip? Yes, you there can. There will be parking uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, for you, those that don't know, if you if you buy a fairgrounds parking spot for the Gamecock games for the season, 
You get that spot for all the games except when the fair is in town because it's the fairgrounds. They own those parking lots. And I think the university may own the lots. Oh, they do. But there was a deal made. They lease them back. That they will have to be, you know, we'll sell you the land under the contingency that you lease it back okay. to us on the on the week of the fair. I think that's the way it okay. worked out. I mean, I think the university is. Because they made a lot of improvements there. They planted trees oh, yeah. and roads and all these other. All I know is I can't park them a normal parking spot. It sucks. For the Florida game. I mean, it really sucks. And, um, and you know, back in the day when I parked with the peasants, I know exactly what you <laughs> folks had to, yes. <laughs> had to deal with. But um, but anyway, um, so, so Josh, l- let me ask you this. Because I'm so interested in this. And maybe our listeners are. Maybe they aren't. Are you or any of your friends concerned um, conversational about climate change. No. Okay. But, but so, so when I say climate change, what, what do you hear? What do you think? What do you feel? What do you believe? Um, when I think of climate change, I think the, the temperature rising and at worst case us losing a couple feet of beach, you know, Miami getting in much needed bath or something like that. So you have no <laughs> apocalyptic concerns whatsoever. I mean, it doesn't even cross your mind that some of these scientists may know what they're talking about and the earth may be uninhabitable in 50 or 100 years from now. I mean, that doesn't even cross your mind. It does a little bit. I, I don't think that the flooding will be as bad as people say, if that is the worst thing to come of it. Some people say that, like, with the atmosphere depleted. Well, what do you mean, stop there? Some people say. I'm interested. Here's what I'm interested in. Who? You're 25. Yeah. Who does the average 25-year-old listen to? When they give commentary about climate change, I've raised my hand and said, not me. I mean, it doesn't need to be me by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I can color it up and flavor it. And I mean, I can make you, well, does that guy know what he's talking about or not? But, but who would somebody your age give serious consideration to an opinion about what may or may not happen? Probably Neil deGrasse Tyson or someone like him. He spooks me a little bit now. I mean, yeah, I'm. But, but he, he's very prominent. I mean, yeah. he's out there. He's on podcast. He's on Twitter. He's on Facebook. I mean, he's on television. He's one of these um, highly decorated scientists, right? But, yeah. but, but any kind of a believer? He, I mean, he is. He Like, the thing he says that is the most concerning is that with the ozone depleted, that the, more of the sun's UV rays will, you know, bombard the planet's surface, which may, you know, like it may make the surface uninhabitable. But the problem that I have with it is, is it's so clearly sensationalized. Like I saw, I saw on Do TikTok, young people believe it's clearly, you do, yeah. but do young people your age in your, in your cohort, do they believe it's sensationalized? I'm sure some of them do. The ones that I interact with don't. Okay. And, and that's where I'm headed. So by a large margin, you've got two-tier justice system. You've got the federal debt. You've got life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And you've got climate change. And by a large margin, I'm talking about 25% more young people are afraid of the eventuality of climate change and what comes along with that than they are the debt, than they are the two-tiered um, justice system. And it's, that's just that's, that's, it's not unusual to me. It's, I mean, I kind of would have expected you know, young people say, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm scared to death of what the next 50 years may look like. Um, Rev, let, let me go to you. Mm-hmm. What are our responsibilities 
in, 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 in participating in the debate of climate change with our younger. Um, I, I'm going back to what Nick said yesterday at the end of the show. Um, Nick, Nick, Nick kind of in his, in, his, in, his, in his rambling way said, how many people listen to talk radio? You know, 6 8% of Americans listen to talk radio. That means 92% or 94%. Are getting their opinions, you know, separate of that. They're 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 making their minds up about climate change, about federal debt, about you know anything. We argue that we're a force, but but we're we're a bit niche. I mean, we, we truly are. It's it's kind of what I'm getting at is Rev knows our demo better than I do. Our demo's not 25 year olds. I mean, our demo's not 30 year olds. Our demo's probably 45 and older. So if if you're if you're 25 year old year olds year years old like Josh, if you're 28, 30, 32, 35, I mean you don't hear that climate change is questionable. The science is uncertain. I mean, who out there not not participating in talk radio are saying that climate change, I've never said it's a farce. I mean, I think it is. I think it's hocus pocus. I think it's a money grab. But I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know the science. I've got a pretty simple question. I like what Vivek Ramaswamy says. The climate change agenda is a hoax. Well, it's a big agenda. I mean, there you go. Okay, but but who's offering that as, a, as an alternative um, to young well, people? Well, and that's my problem is that when uh, I – you can't have a fair debate. And so I just don't even engage in it. I mean, I know what I believe, and I believe we should be good stewards of our our environment, of our planet. Is there any and, information out there that concerns you? I mean, is, is there any honest honest broker who understands the science better than you or Josh that you give any credence to? No. See, I've not heard anybody. And, and, I, and I believe the reason I'm skeptical of anybody, there may be the most sincere scientist in the world that genuinely knows they, what he's talking about. It too. But, but the agenda has caused me to perceive anything he says as being... Uh, highly questionable. And you add that with the fact that if you were, and not me, but but in generally other smart scientific type people, were to try to engage in an actual debate on those issues, I mean, you're really not allowed. So what is the science of climate change, Josh? So the theory goes that because of all the carbon that our vehicles and, and fuel emits, that that depletes the ozone layer in the atmosphere, which is what blocks the sun's UV rays. And which more UV rays getting in, the planet heats up, the glaciers and icebergs melt, which the sea level rises, and, you know, more UV rays, more sunburns. Okay. I think that's happening. I do, too. But but I, I still go back to the cyclical nature of the climate. We, we, we still believe these 50-year windows give us enough evidence. And, and the Earth's been here I mean, multiple billions of years. And and I you know I get the Christian the New Earth I just I don't think old Earth and Christianity are exclusive of one another I think they're very compatible I mean I, th- I think they're I think I think you know people who believe in Genesis in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth I mean if you believe that that doesn't mean you don't believe the Earth was here four billion years or six billion years or whatever carbon dating may or may not lead us to believe I just found it interesting that you yesterday said your concern was the mistreatment of Trump in essence. And I argue the reason you feel that way, Josh, is Trump is a person. I mean, you can touch, feel, see, hear, smell. Um, the debt is this number out there somewhere. 
you know, and, and I like to say if Munger and Buffett don't know, I don't know, but, but it's not personal. But when I read, cause what I did is I said, I mean, yesterday when I got home, I Googled, um, what do young people, I mean, what do young people give a John Brown about? And it came up time and time and time and time again. I mean, it was almost unanimous. I mean, it was almost like every poll, every data gathering said young people are deeply concerned about man-made climate change. Young people are willing to adjust their lifestyles. And, and I mean, 26% of Americans under the age of 30 are willing to move to a place if it's considered to be safer in regards to climate change. You know, in other words, this, um, th- this place in the world could, could stomach a 2% or excuse me, a two degree increase in it's a uh, nominal temperature or average, average temperature. I'm like, what? But, but it's young people and they're highly impressionable. And I think young people like to every now and then be on the cutting edge. You know, that they, they like to believe some of these uh, aggressive theories because it sets them up to be more popular and revered in some of their, in some of their social circles. Let's take a break. I want Rev to explain in the next segment why we're doing um, the format a little bit differently <laughs> than we previously had. Um, it's my fault. I mean, it's always been my fault. And eventually we'll get back to it being uh, my fault. But but anyway, I'll let him share with you the reason. And I think you'll understand it once Rev explains it. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. our number. Somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. DW in Florence. Good morning, Don. Morning, guys. What's going on? Morning. Hey, yeah, you know, every time I listen to this um, climate control and people afraid and the world's coming to an end and, you know, what can you trust? These, trust these scientists who run all kind of gamuts back and forth. You know, I just wonder if God sometimes just doesn't laugh and go, you know, if you guys ain't getting it, you're not getting it all. I'm in control of this thing. It ain't going nowhere to. You know, I say it is, and it's just so hard for some people to believe. You know, I have great faith in young people today because they have no faith, and they trust anything a man says and nothing a God will say. And it's just amazing to me that we walk around all day long wringing our hands and fretting about something we got no control over other than being a good steward. Like you said earlier, man, we need to be a good steward. But I hate to break the bad news to everybody. It ain't in our hands. Uh, it's not going to happen the way we want it to happen because we think we can uh, turn a car around one way or do this, that, or the other. We just need to be good stewards, learn to love our people, teach our kids, man. Our kids are lost. Uh, they're lost. They don't have a clue. I mean, half of them are stuck up in somebody's upstairs room or in the basement or whatever else. They've got no hope. What a shame it is. And there's a God out there who loves them and cares for them and wants to do something awesome in their life because he's got a great plan for them. And they miss it all because they listen to all this fear. You know, fear don't come from God. It comes from the enemy. And, man, I just wish somehow, some way we could break through that that powerful hole they've got and um, just give them some hope because they've got none. That just breaks my heart. So I appreciate what you guys do. I mean, you're trying to fight for the, the good fight, push forward some the ideas of, uh, you know, there's hope out there, guys. This ain't the end of the world. We've lived through it. You can live through it. And uh, that's the end of my sermon for today. And uh, I love you guys. I appreciate what you do. Uh, go Tigers. Still kind of go Gamecocks. And you guys have a great day. <laughs> Thank you, DW. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. But, I mean, I've argued that to me, and, and this, is, this is not scientific at all, 
if you believe that man is top of the food chain, I mean, if, you, if you're not somebody who believes in the God, the creator, God, you know, created the heavens and the earth, God is in charge, God has, I mean, from the beginning to the end, the Alpha and the Omega, um, I mean, what, 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 I mean, if you believe that man is top of the food chain, then you believe some of these scientists are as good as it gets, that they do have the ability to comprehend. Um, I mean, I, that, that's the part of humility, human humility. And, I, and I've used this as an example before. Let's, let's argue that Einstein's the smartest guy that ever God ever allowed to be created. And his IQ is whatever, whatever his IQ is. I mean, I don't think he is, but he split an atom. He's in the top 1%, right? I mean, he came up with some pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um, I don't know if he knew how to change a tire, but that's for another day. Um, but, but if you believe that Einstein is godlike, then, then I get it. I mean, I understand how you would believe that we have the capacity to understand some of the unknown. I went back and looked after I read this story. I mean, DW goes on an interesting road. See, I trust our callers because you have this keen insight, this awareness that, 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 you know, has been very beneficial to this show. I went back after I read that so many young people are trusting, excuse me, so many young people are, are concerned not about the debt, not about the, um, the, the differing applications of justice, but rather climate. And are they going to be, are, are they going to live in a world that allows them to have kids and to live a happy and prosperous life? Or are they going to be, you know, living under an umbrella, you know, with an air conditioner, a fan blowing because the world's so hot and, and everything's burning to a crisp. I went back and read the changes in religious spiritual self-identification. In 1999, was that 20, nearly 25 years ago, 65% of Americans, excuse me, 65% of Democrats consider themselves religious. You know what that number is today? I mean, well, let's, let's do this. Republicans, independents, and, and Democrats. Uh, about 65% Democrat and Republican consider themselves religious or spiritual in 1999. Today, it's about the same number of Republicans. It's 62%. So you've gone from 65 to 62%. The Democrats have gone from 65 to 37%. So only 37% of Democrats, and this is a Pew Research poll, a Pew and Gallup. I mean, this is kind of a um, uh, kind of an overlay of one poll and and another. Um, Independents still about the same. There's been somewhat of a decline, but but the truth is that the Democrat Party. Here you go, Breeze. You ready? It's become somewhat of a godless party. The majority of Democrats don't consider themselves religious or spiritual. So if you're, if you're a political party that, that has just kind of said, okay, God, take a back seat, we've got these scientists, we've got these well-educated and well-credentialed and well-pedigreed voices and, and minds that are going to kind of lead us through uh, wherever it is we're headed. And I'm not saying you take God out of the equation. That's unfair because, once again, 37% of Democrats still call themselves spiritual or religious. That means 63 doesn't, right? So two of every three Democrats— I, I guess the the belief, the 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 zealousness about climate change is this evolution within their party that God's not as big a deal. You know, um, I mean, if 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 the party goes from once again, I mean that that's a big number, guys. I mean that's going from two of three Democrats being religious or spiritual, self-identifying, to one in three. I mean, how does a party not change its perspectives on things? 
if that many people were religious and aren't religious or spiritual. It's kind of an interesting word. I mean, I, you know, I like to say I'm a spiritual guy. I don't know how religious I am. And somebody says, what does that mean? I mean, I, I don't care much for organized religion. I, I just don't. It makes me nervous. I mean, when man saying that my interpretation of Scripture is the only interpretation to be considered, that makes me a little nervous, uh, almost always. And I get a little skittish of that person uh, from their own, especially somebody who's never, never given much commitment. You know, they, they went to a seminar for a weekend or a retreat for a weekend or two. I mean, there are people who dedicate their lives to understanding Scripture and the Bible and religion and spirituality. I mean, they, they have credibility with me. I listen to a lot of what, of what they say. But once again, when, when I read a poll that said climate change by a mile is the thing that concerns young people more than anything, um, James Carville argues that the biggest concern the Democrats have in the 2024 presidential election is the lack of enthusiasm of young and African-American voters. I mean, that's their, that's their wheelhouse, young people and African-Americans. So, so, so if you really say, okay, Carville is smart. I mean, you, you can say he's crazy or you can say he's, uh, you know, politically incorrect or he use good grammar. He's guilty of all that. But there's nobody that says James Carville doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, James Carville is a very accomplished uh, politico. But Carville says that, you know, the, the lack of enthusiasm that young people and African-Americans have for this president is, is troubling. And he goes through these numbers at 10% here. And I mean, that's his livelihood. He's done this in a very analytical way for a long time and been highly successful at it. But I just, when, when I, when I read that poll that said that, that young people aren't that concerned about debt, better be, aren't that concerned about the, you know, the dual application of justice, but are deeply alarmed by climate change and what may happen to the world during the balance of their lifetime. I'm going like, where do they get that from? So you take the combination of what what I'll call institutional indoctrination, right? I mean, education convinces them. The media convinces them. I know education and academia are kind of the same, but they aren't exactly the same. So you've got a formal education system. You've got academia at the higher education level. You've got the media. I mean, they're all beating Josh in the head with climate change is real and you better be afraid. Climate change is real and you better be afraid. Um, And then you take the fact that Democrats – which are young and African-American souls, by and large. I mean, you're seeing a precipitous decline in the people who identify as Democrats and religious and spiritual. In other words, if you find a religious, spiritual Democrat, there's two that aren't. I mean, that's kind of what the math dictates. And in previous times, 25, not 100 years ago, 25 years ago, two of three Democrats identified as religious or spiritual and the, the, the Republicans are about where they were. I mean, there's been a little bit of a decline, but we know the decline of religion in America today. It's gone from 65 to 60 to 62%. Now, um, here's kind of an interesting number. You ready? Um, those that consider themselves neither religious nor spiritual, in other words, uh, atheist, is that fair to say? I mean, they didn't call them an atheist, but they're not spiritual. They're not religious. In 1999, 7% of Democrats. Today, 21%. So so roughly one in four Democrats don't consider themselves religious or spiritual. And, and I'm putting, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, putting a, a spin on it. Is, is that an atheist? I mean, is 25% of the Democrat Party atheist? 
Sounds like it. Well, I mean, I, the, the data says what the data says. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. Bert in Florence. Morning, Bert. You're on. Good morning. You know, I, when I was a kid, it was always there was going to be an ice age, then there was going to be desert, and then there's going to be a water planet, and then there's climate change, whatever. So when you look at the evidence, and here's the evidence I looked at, you can take pictures from 100 years ago of famous places around the ocean. Now, they're always calling the ocean's going to rise, the ocean's rising. 100 years ago, you can compare those pictures to the same place today, and the water has risen none, not one inch. It has not risen. It is not true. The whole thing is a farce. It's a money grab. But it doesn't surprise me that the younger generation truly, truly believes in climate change because I deal with that every day with people. But I go back to when I was a kid, and you know what my biggest fear was? Jesus was coming back any minute. It was the end of the world, Armageddon, so on and so on. We have educated our young people by taking the same lessons that the church has given us. That's what the world has done. So it should not be a surprise that they really believe because the same people, you, who who don't believe in climate change and can see it for what it is, cannot see the church for what it is. And you truly in your heart believe Jesus is coming back. Apply the same evidence. Look at it in that same harsh light that you look at climate change and replace the the scientist with the priest and look at your childhood and you'll find out you've been lied to about a whole lot more than climate change. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. Um, that's unfair. I don't think I do. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean let, let's, let's go here for a second. So I became a Christian because of a drug problem I had. I mean, you've heard me say that. I was drugged to church on Wednesday and Sunday, whether I wanted to go or not. Sometimes twice on Sunday, whether I wanted to go or not. That was non-negotiable in Margie Ard's home. That's just the way it was, and we knew that's the way it was. When my sister died in 2001, for the first time in my life, I began to yearn. I mean, I really began to seriously consider the hereafter. I mean, I, you know, I'll accept what Bert said. I did it a bit innocently and naively, or naively to begin with. I, I did. I, I took my mom's word at, I took my mom at her word, and I accepted the gospel of Jesus because I knew my mom loved me enough to not mislead me. But when my sister died in 2001, I went on about a three-year journey trying to better understand and decipher and, and make heads or tails with what I believed and why I believed and was it fundamental to my life and was it real and true and could I touch and feel it? And I am more convinced after that journey than I've ever been that I'm right and Bert's wrong. So to suggest that I've taken people to their word and I've been, you know, uh, blindly loyal to some fairy tale. Um, I mean, I, I don't doubt that some people are, are a bit blindly loyal and, and, and some obviously perceive it to be a fairy tale, but to suggest I'm one of them is just not true. I mean, I think I've proven my worth in doing the digging necessary to figure out whether something is legit or not, something is real or not. And I can't explain it to Bert because Bert doesn't believe. I believe I've accepted as a matter of faith that Jesus is who he says he was. And one of these days, Bert and I both will look God Almighty in the eyes and we'll be held accountable for what we do, what we don't do, what we believe, what we don't believe. 
Um, and that's personal for Bert, personal for me. It's personal for Josh. It's personal for Rev. I can't tell Josh what his relationship with God should be like. He's got to figure that out himself. Um, it's very personal. That's what I take about, about my faith and my religion. It is personal to me. And I'm not offended because I enjoy the debate. But to suggest that I have just taken somebody at their word, uh, up until about 2001, I probably am guilty as charged. I still believe I was right. And I still believe there's enough historical documentation to support the existence of Jesus and the, 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 the crucifixion of the resurrection and, I mean, I, you know, um, Paul's letters and Peter's, Peter's actions and all these other sorts of things. But, but I'm not one to blindly loyal or to be blindly loyal to anything. And, and once again, when a 29-year-old sibling dies, you really want to know why. You really want to understand, wow, okay, I mean, what, help, help me make sense of this. And I couldn't make any sense of it. So I went on this yearning journey. And out of that yearning journey came uh, a conclusion that, that I had to draw on my own. And I am beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, convinced that I am on the right side of this. And I am, am, I, am I completely committed to it? No, of course I'm not. Good land, some of the things I say and do and think and, 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 and prioritize as, you know, something important in my life. Good Lord, catch me. Uh, when when the um when the defensive end sacks the Carolina quarterback for the fourth time of the night, ain't no way uh, <laughs> that I'm getting through those gates with, with the way I act and behave and and say things. But I believe in grace and forgiveness and mercy, and that's something that unless you accept the gospel of Christ and the existence of of His you know salvation, you won't understand that. So um you know I'll admit climate change. I don't know. I'm highly skeptical. Uh, of the agenda, but but I feel nowhere, nowhere near as uncertain about my belief of the gospel of Jesus Christ as I do the science of climate change. I have settled that. I have settled that on a on about a two and a half year journey where I once again, and this is the weirdest word of my, where I yearned to know exactly what it meant to believe. So you know, Bert, I'm sorry, but you uh, you know, um, yeah, maybe there is a a naivete. Maybe there's a gullibleness. Maybe there's a, um, you know, you do it because you were told to do it. I ain't one of them. I mean, I'm 1,000% sure I ain't one of them. I went on a journey, and the journey convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is who he says he was. You've got to go on that journey your own. You've got to make that conclusion uh, the, the way you decide um, to make that conclusion. I've done that. I've absolutely done that, and I'm an unbelievably comfortable soul when it comes to my relationship. Got no idea about Josh's. Got no idea about Rev's. But my relationship with my Savior is something I have 1,000% confidence in. 843-661-0937. And I was going to say one thing to Bert's point. This is something I hear a lot from, and I don't don't know if Bert's an atheist, but I hear it from atheists where – they think just because I was born into a Christian home that I never questioned Christianity. I mean, that was something I had, I dealt with. I when still I moved. question. I don't doubt. I mean, I don't doubt anymore. I still question. Of course I do. I question. Wow, pretty wild what I believe, isn't it? You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll drink, a, I'll have a drink of bourbon sitting by a fire and look at the stars. Of course I question. Who can do all that? <laughs> 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 Who can manage all that at one time? You know what I mean? I mean, of course. I mean, but but to me, that's that's essential. I mean, that's 
You know, it is an unknown. That's where faith comes in. I don't know everything I wish I knew about the heavens and the earth, but but I believe I have faith in the gospel of, of Christ and the existence of Almighty God. Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Bobby in Hartsville. Good morning. You're on. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, I want to make three quick points right quick um, on what, what Bert said. One is... It's right quick, the, quicker than just regular quick. <laughs> it is. Okay. <laughs> it is right quick. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the Bible says that in the last days, scoffers would come saying that Christ, you know, where is his, where is his coming? Christ is not coming back, what have you. So I guess Bert just uh, fulfilled prophecy there. The second thing is... Um, it sounds like maybe that the Bible was used to scare him when it was talk- when he was a kid talking about uh, Christ's return, but it was actually meant to be comfort. Paul said to use that to comfort one another about Christ's return. So if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be afraid that, that Christ is coming back. You should be looking forward to it. Third point, uh, you mentioned about your sister passing away and, and your belief there uh, more in Christ. Yesterday at work, I had been missing this guy. I hadn't seen him in a while. And I had, he had just come on my mind, and about a few minutes later, he, he came to where I was at. And I said, man, things being. I said, Ben, I hadn't seen you in a while. He said, yeah, he said, my son passed away, and he said, I've been out with him. He, he's, his son's 30 years old, and, uh, and he just passed away. And so I just tried to encourage him some that he, he, he was breaking up. He's still going through a lot there. And uh, I just mentioned God to him, and he's, man, he's, look, I, I just don't know how people would make it without God. And he said, you're right. I, I've got God and I, I, I don't know how they would make it. And so, you know, there's just, it's just too much there for the birds of the world to convince us otherwise. Thank you, Bobby. You appreciate it. And, and once again, um, if Bert's accusing me of being naive and gullible in my younger days, I probably was, I mean, I probably didn't make a true commitment, um, to try and better understand what it is I'm ultimately hanging my hat on. And it ain't Gamecock football. It ain't Braves baseball. It's not building a, you know, it's not a radio show or a podcast or, or a commercial property. Um, sure, I care about those things, and I struggle with the balance of making sure God's first in my life. And, and, and folks, I've laid my head down many nights knowing I didn't make God the priority of my life. But I'm aware of it, and that's that convicting spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to get preachy here um, I mean, I don't mind doing it. I don't mind getting preachy at all. I've been asked to speak at a lot of churches and I enjoy doing that. Um, I mean, I could go down the road of, of explaining why I think God led me into politics. I don't know why he got me thrown out, but I think he led me, <laughs> he led, he led me into politics. Um, when I prayed to God, when I looked in the mirror, when I said, God, why is all this happening to me? He said, I didn't fill out that form. <laughs> I didn't declare that campaign finance you know, report to be accurate or not. You kind of did that on your own volition, hardhead, stubborn, know-it-all. You know, and I think he kind of threw those in as a little bit of color. Look, I don't have all the answers. I've never in a million years professed to have all the answers. But but the the thing that allows me to get up and endure the things that life will throw at you is a, is a belief in God, a belief in you know, whatever the 78.6 years, I got no idea how many days I get here. I got no idea what guarantees I made um, or, or God has made me in my earthly existence. But I am more sure than ever that the hereafter is eternity and and he's prepared a place for me 
and he offers a, that, that same proposal stands for everybody. Some say no, some say yeah. Um, some struggle to get there. Some kind of take it a, a little bit more on faith. Uh, and, and I can't answer that question for everybody. I mean, I really can't. But, but I, I'll use, I think there's a country song, Give Faith a Fighting Chance. I think those that don't give faith a fighting chance don't find a lot of fulfillment, happiness, and contentment in this world. Those that do will be surprised what you find. And I think one of the great misnomers in the world, Rev, is once you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, the troubles of the world, the troubles of your world, just flee. I mean, they're gone. God's in your life, so how in the world can cancer be here? How can a misbehaving kid or addiction, in my case, uh, make it? It's the earth. It's the world. It's the flesh. It's it's the sin nature of man that um that God, for whatever reason, allows to exist, and we have to deal with in our in our earthly existence. And the only thing I take, I take exception with is when Bert basically accused me of believing something because I was told to believe it. I, for for a while in my life, guilty is charged, but but I'll tell you this. If you go on that journey, be careful what you ask for. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. You know, talk radio bumps into religion and faith and, and Christianity a lot. We talk about our Christian values and, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about changes in religious, spiritual self-identification. Uh, the, the only, and, and I love Bert to death. I mean, Bert and I, Bert of a thousand gods. I only got one. So Bert's gotten me whipped on how many <laughs> gods uh, he depends on and, and counts on, I, the only thing that, that frustrates me is when someone says that you make a decision as critical to your existence as that in, in some blind way. And, you know, I just think adults owe it to themselves to pursue. I, I think all human beings are in general curious, in particular about the unknown. So, so there will always be an element of unknown, Josh, about my faith in and God and Jesus. I mean, there, there will, I will never, I mean, God's not, I don't think he is. I mean, Jesus is going to send me a post-it note, you know, and put it on my mirror tomorrow morning saying, hey, here's exactly what you want you to do, and you'll score 100. You know, eat all your food, and you get 100. Give me a happy plan. I mean, I just don't think God rolls that way. I think he lives, I think God allows us to exercise our free spirit in the most humanistic way imaginable, but he's there. I mean, he's absolutely there. And if you make a commitment of faith, you know he's there. You sense he's there. You feel he's there. Are, are there moments in your life you think he left you in the ditch? Of course it is. But he didn't. He didn't. Um, I, I can assure you of that. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze, good morning. You're on. You know, uh, something doesn't come from nothing. But here's another point, though. You know, says so I guess there's no preachers or pastors listening to this show. But, you know, we're all told... In the Bible, you know, as Christians, we're supposed to go out and spread the word, evangelize, and, and so forth. And I've been a little bit let down with pastors here during the whole past three or four years. But I'll, I'll tell you this. If you look at God, you start thinking of kindness, compassion, lack of arrogance, humility, you know, kindness, sincerity, nice, you know, all of those attributes. Then you look at the devil, and what do you have? Arrogance, rudeness. They insult you. They're condescending. They tease you. They pick on you. They tell you they're stupid. That that in itself shows you the very existence between God and Satan. I said, you know, so when you're sitting there and you have these these 
they, they, they don't even want to know what they call themselves. Well, I'm not an atheist. I'm this, that, and other. Let me just put it to you this way, brother. You live in, you, you're, you're, you hate God and you, and you are living, and you are, and that's, and that's just the bottom line. And if you hate God and you can call yourself all the names in the world, but that's just it. And until your eyes are open, you always will hate God. And, and, and if you know, everything is in the book and if you search for it, you can find it. But, Anyway, what I was going to get back to, though, is you were talking about Democrats and their godlessness, which is true. But you said you were talking about percentages of Democrats that have gone down and they no longer believe in God or are Christians. You know, there's a difference, too, believing there's a God being a Christian. You know, the devil believes there's a God. Even the demons would come up and uh, tell, so I know you tell Jesus, I know who you are. You know, so you don't have to be a Christian to believe in God. But, you know, you, you can, yeah, so you can go around being a believer all day long and go straight to hell. But anyway, um, what I wondered is, is what happened to those, say, in other words, if if the Democrat Party at one time was 64% of their people approximately believed in God, and now it's down, what do you say, kid, about 30% or something? About 35%. Percent. It's gone from about two and three to one and three. So anyway, so where did two so the two thirds so in other words two thirds of those people didn't go to the Republican Party because that would mean that the Democrat Party has lost two thirds of its voters or did they just find other people to come in other words, where did those two thirds go? Did they just um, all of a sudden quit believing in God? Did they die? In other words, what happened to the two thirds of the people that that you would, that, that were either believers or thought they are Christians or somewhere like that. What happened to them? Is my question. Where did they go? Did they? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You see, that would be a nice voting block. <laughs> you know, if you got some kind of a decent Christian trying to run for office, which I worry about that every day. You know, any of these politicians will tell you anything. They'll sit there, go to a church, and pretend to be uh, all God fearing Christians, and then next weekend they're at the Playboy Mansion. So. But I mean, where did those uh, where did those called Democrat Christians go? Did they become atheists? Um, did did enough birds out there tease them and pick on them and call them stupid for believing in God to where they just said they don't believe anymore? They they're scared to say they believe. I mean, where did they go? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. And that's the only substantial number. I mean, when you look at independents, nineteen ninety nine, uh, two thousand twenty three, it's at about fifty percent. Um, Republicans went from about 65% to 62%. The Democrats are where you see the big change from roughly about the same thing as Republicans, 62%, a little bit less, to 37%. And I'm rounding off when I say two of three turns into one of three. Here's what I think one of the great struggles in America today is. um, Those of us who call ourselves Christians and try to live a Christian existence, I mean, I fail miserably at times. I mean, I'll, I'll readily admit I fail miserably at times to hold up my end of the deal. But but when I look at the world and what, I mean, I, let's take government for an example. Um, Donald Trump, you know, we get questioned. You and I got challenged, Rev, on our faith and our support of Trump. How mm-hmm. can you be, you know, a God-fearing Christian and believe in the Bible and the, the gospel of Jesus and support Donald Trump? I just think that right now, the great struggle in America is Christians trying to consider the ruthlessness of its government 
and what it takes to encounter or oppose. Remember the word I used this morning, and I go back to the Facebook post that a good um, listener and caller and friend of mine uh, put on Facebook, and he's an observant soul. I mean, that, in fact, that's the, the comment I made on his Facebook page. Are Christians going to be willing to get dirt under their fingernails and blood on their knuckles? Does God call us to be in the throes of a hotly contested fight for the heart and soul of our nation and what is required? Can Christians throw a punch if called upon? Can Christians pick up a stick if called upon? Can Christians defend the honor and integrity of a sovereign nation if called upon? I think the church, we talk a lot about the church. I think the church, here I'm getting in trouble with, I mean, the schools hate me, so I guess the church will now. Um <laughs> I think the church has convinced Christians that everything is lovey-dovey, hunky-dory, and as long as we gather on Sunday mornings and raise enough money to pay the bills and love on one another, keep the soup kitchen filled, then everything's fine. That's the role and responsibility of the church. I think the role and responsibility of the church is to prepare warriors, to equip warriors to go out and fight like hell for things they believe in. I mean, I think that's the role of the church, to put God-fearing Christians on solid enough footing that they're confident, secure enough to go out and take on whatever evil is in the world today. And there's no way that $33 trillion of debt is evil. I mean, that's evil. That's wicked. To allow this nation to go $33 trillion in debt took some degree of sin. I mean, you can disguise it whatever you want to, but, but it's sinful for leaders to allow our nation to be $33 trillion in debt knowing that one day, Eventual generations will deal with the consequences of that dual application of justice. I mean, there's a certain depravity, human depravity and evil in somebody who's in power, has the ability to indict or not, and does it for political gain. I mean, that's evil. That's human depravity. And, and, and the, the church says, yeah, but I mean, we had 300 on Sunday morning and we raised X number of dollars and we had a car wash for the homeless and, you know, we, we did all, we, we bought a new bus and we're carrying kids to camp and okay, fair enough. But there's a ruthless world out there that Christians are extracting themselves from because I think the church has convinced them that, you know, as long as we gather together and love on one another and share the gospel with one another and no, I mean, I think we are called at times, and I think what the church should be doing is, is building warriors and equipping men. I mean, I'll say that. I mean, God bless women, and I think there's an absolute role for women to play in this, an essential role for women to play in this. But I think the church should consider as one of its primary responsibilities equipping men. I'll say this, and I know we're talking about Jesus and God. I think men have to be badasses at times. And I think right now is a moment that the badasses need to come out of the church with a solid footing in their belief of Christianity and right and wrong and, and virtue and integrity and ethic and moral come from there and not Fox News or CNN or the Wall Street Journal or, or the New York Times. And I think the church has failed miserably, miserably at encouraging men to go out in the political world, the business world, uh, you know, the, the academic settings and fight for what they believe in. Preach it. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm telling you. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, well, then, yeah, yeah. Probably not so much to some of these, to some of these um churches that want to make sure they maintain a certain enrollment yeah. and, and attendance. No, and, man, that was, and, you know, the bottom line. Let's go to the phone. Someone's that was strong. there. Huh? Someone's there. Sam in Darlington. Good morning. You're on. Good morning. Uh, Ken, I was calling in to talk about Burke, but let me talk about you a little bit, how the 
I'd rather you not. I'd rather you talk about Bert, to be honest. With you. <laughs> just, just what you just said. I, I think, yeah, the church should be uh, training men to be warriors, but that doesn't mean that we have to play by the same playbook that the devil has. You know, I mean, there. How do we fight? Um, and you know, they, it does say overcome evil with good. You know, so that's a, something to to sort of balance off, I think, what you were saying. Although, you know, in general, I, I would agree with you. Um, if I can get to Bert, I, I think it's interesting that the, the you know, the, the non-believers, people who who, who have uh, taken the, the road of supposed science and said, you know, uh, God and, and the Bible are all not true, they end up sort of, coming back through the back door to things like original sin or inescapable judgment. You know, back when I was younger, 40 years ago, a big deal was population. You know, we, we were going to be punished for, for overpopulation. And, and there were people back then uh, who had studied in this field who were saying, that's not true. You know, the trends are downward in birth. And so um, we're going to probably come to a time pretty soon when we'll be wanting more people, and that is coming true. And uh, the same thing about science, you know, it's just like, you know, people, I guess, have some sort of innate sense of our sin, our sinfulness, uh, original sin or something, and, and that sort of comes out some way, and, and now the the unbelievers are, are posting that, are attributing that to uh burning too much fossil fuels anyway it's sort of an interesting point i thought very interesting thank you sam appreciate the call 843-661-0937 somebody else on the phone let's go there larry in the pd good morning larry hey guys good morning hey larry so i'm going to explain just real quick why it is just illogical if you're going to believe anything which everybody believes something there are no non-believers and we'll take burke for example so burke's got a thousand gods and none of them make any claim of exclusivity. If you worship 999, you're fine. 1,001, doesn't matter. 500. But there's only one God out there that says, I'm the only one. God the Father made that claim in the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ made that claim in the New Testament. He said, I am the way, the door, the truth, the life. I am the door. No man can enter, lest by me, right? All that good stuff. So if I were a betting man and I had any logic in my brain at all, the one God that I would make sure that I was worshiping would be that one, because Buddha doesn't care. If I get it wrong, he, I'll just get born again and, and come back as a lizard or something, right? But he doesn't care. So it just shows you the intellectual limitation to believe anything that makes any sense that a disbeliever has. Bert fancies himself an intellect and an academic, but he has no logic in his belief system at all, because if he had any logic, he would make sure that he covered the guy that makes the exclusive claim. Because on the other side of that claim is, if you don't believe in me, it's over for you. No other religion makes that claim. No other God makes that claim. Just one. So you'd be a fool not to follow him. Because even if you're wrong, and it really is Buddha, he doesn't care. But if you follow Buddha and you're wrong... You're done for, brother. So it makes no logical sense to follow any other God, number one. Number two, 
about men being warriors and Christian warriors. The Bible has a whole chapter dedicated to putting on armor. It describes, you know, a shield, a breastplate, a sword, all that stuff. And at the end of that description, it says, and having done all this, after you put on all your armor, it says, stand. doesn't say fight. doesn't say take any ground. Because what people forget is when Christians stand, God shows up. And when God shows up, you don't have to fight because he fixes everything. It's not about taking ground. It's just about holding the ground you've got. All we have to do is say no. The answer is no. I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to do that thing. I'm not going to buy that thing. I'm not going to watch that thing. I'm not going to live in that place. I'm not going to vote that way. No. That's the answer. Just say no. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it, my man. 843-661-0937. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937. For those that know me, know that I'm the last person that needs to be preaching (laughs) on, on the radio. I mean, I am a deeply, deeply, deeply flawed man but I am extremely comfortable in my own skin. I mean, that's a weird dichotomy, but I I kind of, I got to check at each box. I'm deeply flawed. Check. I am comfortable in my own skin. Check. That's a dangerous combination uh, for someone to have a microphone and a forum and a medium. And I thought it was great. I did. I thought it was great. But but we've had some of these conversations on and off the air. True. And and you you made an interesting point in the break. You you asked, is, is this some of the intrigue with Trump? I mean, when you look at Christians or people who identify as Christians, they overwhelmingly support um, Trump. I actually said uh, Friday um, to Jay Jordan, you know, this is kind of unusual. So so Jay, Philip, and Mike have districts. They're unique. I mean, there's a lot of overlap. Mike's district is bigger than Jay or Phillip's because it's a Senate district. Fewer senators than than House members. But, you know, um, in Jay Jordan's district, and I'm speculating, I don't know this to be true, Trump loses the country club and wins the church. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, well, you're help right. me with that. I mean, that doesn't make any <laughs> sense at all. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. My, my opinion, because you were asking about, okay, everybody historically in the Republican Party have looked at Trump as uh, a little bit immoral, a little bit unethical, a little bit rough around the edges. I believe this, and this is kind of my theory and my theory alone. I believe that the majority of human beings would rather somebody fight your fight than you fight it yourself. I, I, I think it's easy to say, I can't stop you, but I'll find somebody who can. You know, I, I, can't, I can't address the issue, but I'll find someone who can. And Trump is one of these guys who will, I mean, he stood in front of a judge and called him a rogue and, and said, you know, other than the last five minutes, the guy sucked. <laughs> You know, and, and he's he a judge and, and the, you know, Christians, oh, don't, don't make the judge mad, man. I mean, don't, you know, don't do that. I mean, the lawyer rolls their eyes like, well, there's my career and I ain't <laughs> sure this guy will pay me or not. Um, but, but I think there's, I think there's some, I think the, the church is somewhat of a reflection of society in general when we'd rather find somebody to fight our fight for us. And I think Christianity has long lost the, the edge of, of standing, and I think Larry's right. I mean, I don't think Christianity in any way, shape, or form says provoke a fight, unnecessarily attack anybody. But do you stand for what you believe in? I mean, are you willing to stand there and take a punch and throw one back? And I'm talking about figuratively, not literally, unless necessary. Um, but, but I think in Trump, we find somebody who will fight our fight for us. 
You know, hey, it's, wind Trump up. That, that fool will go out there and he'll fight for some of these things that we believe in. We're not sure he believes in them. I mean, that, that's the travesty in all of this. We don't know where Trump stands on abortion. We don't know where Trump stands on gay marriage. We don't know where Trump stands on taxation. But we know he'll fight. We, we know that he's not afraid to stand in the, in the vestibule of a courtroom and say, the judge is a crook. <laughs> Trump, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Don't, don't say that. You've got this legal team behind you that's got to deal in courtrooms all over the country. And I think we're so unbelievably infatuated and intrigued with that because I think in our heart of hearts, I mean, Larry said it, I said it, Sam said it. I think we all know that the church should be equipping more men to be warriors. The men just didn't sign up for that. The men are like, hey, I got a job, and I got a family, and I'm a member of the country club, and, you know, I owe the bank money. I don't much want to get in this brouhaha. And Trump says, I oh, screw it. I, you know, I don't care. <laughs> Judge, uh, politicians. Um, I, I just think there's an almost infatuation that the Christian church, in, in other words, I believe this. I think people who run Christian churches, men who understand the gospel and, and participate in the the organization religion of Christianity, I think they know that they dropped the ball on being forceful and standing their ground. And and so let's let Trump do it. <laughs> Remember the uh, the cereal commercial? Give Mikey let Mikey, yeah, let Mikey eat it. He'll eat anything. Let yeah. Trump do it. Trump will fight anybody anywhere. Well, well, do you think that is part of the answer to the question then when the when the when the non Trumpers say, How can you as a Christian support this guy? Well, to me, I mean, he's right on trade, China, and immigration. Right. But that's a policy decision. I mean, I'm not I'm But he's not so for, bad. Well, I mean, I, well, I How mean, can you as a Christian support him? And, and, and my answer is always this, and you've heard my answer. What are we protecting from? Right. Uh, what, what is so sacred and virtuous? Because you hear it all the time. Yeah, that's, sure. That's one of the you know, criticisms. Trump's a threat to democracy. And those guys aren't. Those ladies aren't. I mean, God rest her soul. Diane Feinstein what was what, what was sanctimonious? I mean, she was a a preserver <laughs> of, of democracy. I, I, when somebody throws that in my face, well, you know, you don't think Trump's the threat to democracy. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Is he different? Yeah. Is he aggressive? Yeah. Is he bombastic? No. Yeah. He's all those things. But but do you believe government is? <laughs> I mean, do you really believe that government is to a place that somebody like Trump can make it nastier and less virtuous? Really? I mean, that's, you know, I mean, people believe that he's unacceptable. Says who? He isn't presidential. Says who? I mean, was, was Andrew Jackson presidential? Was Thomas Jefferson presidential? I, I just think we've got, I believe that Christians' infatuation with Trump, Christian support of Trump, is he'll do things you're afraid to do. Now, now once again, I don't know what he believes do you, Josh? I mean, in all honesty, I mean, the three of us are Trump supporters to different degrees. Do you really believe you know where Trump stands on abortion? In his heart of heart, I do not. Do you believe we know where he stands on gay marriage? Uh, no. Or taxes? Not exactly. No, but I think I know where he stands on regulation. <laughs> he wants low taxes he wants, and less regulation. He's a pro-business president. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He's a pro-business Republican. You know what? They're a dime a dozen. Pro-business deregulating Republicans are a dime a dozen. In fact, you can't be, you know, a, a pro-regulation, tax-raising Republican. You're a Democrat right. if you do that. Exactly. But I mean, tr Trump's modus operandi politically is very normal. I mean, his agenda is very normal. Now, now he does things. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, 
For 30, 40 years, we've said the embassy needs to be in Jerusalem. Every president said the embassy, give it, if, you, if you elect me president, I'm moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Nobody does it. When Trump gets elected, he calls somebody somewhere that's in charge of that and says, hey, move that embassy to Jerusalem. Whoa, 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 whoa. We just say that. We don't really do that. We just say that, you fool. You crazy man, you. Well, everybody in the church wanted the embassy in Jerusalem. That's where it's supposed to be. But we never did that until Trump. And once again, I think the church crowd sit on the back row and go, yeah, Trump. Yeah, he's moving that embassy to Jerusalem. <laughs> George W. didn't. I mean, he quoted the 23rd Psalm, you know, after 9-11, and he said that Jesus was the most influential person in his life. I mean, I've never heard Trump say that. I mean, in fact, I, I think you, it wouldn't surprise me if Trump said something, two Corinthians walk into a bar, you know, and <laughs> we, we joked, around, we joked yeah. around with that one day. We don't know what that guy believes, but we know he'll do something that we've historically been afraid to do, and that is take on powerful apparatuses, powerful people, in the most aggressive way imaginable, and we love him for that. He's fighting the good fight that we're supposed to, but most are afraid to. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Boy, I love this conversation. The reason we love Trump is if you read the Bible, you know about a guy named Paul. And Paul was probably one of the greatest disciples of Jesus Christ who never lived. But before he was Paul, he was Saul. And he did nothing but kill Christians. So God has a use for everyone. I, I think of my God. I don't know what Bert was taught when he was a child, but he is, he is my heavenly father. He is like my father on earth except in a grander scale. We're all brothers and sisters of this God because he, you know, he's our father. Now, just like my father on earth, he loves me with no bounds, no limits. And I think my father in heaven's love is even greater than that. And that's all he wants me to do is love him and love my neighbor as myself, like I do my own brothers and sisters. You know, from the time I grew up, I was taught, you know, you, you save, you you gather, not for your own self, but you gather enough to take care of yourself and your neighbor. Now, what's wrong with that? You know, we have a, a two-year supply thing in our church. A two-year supply is not just for you just to help your neighbor out. You know, if you, if you lose your job, you got food. If you have savings, you can get by. And all the Lord asks for is 10%. I mean, he gives us everything. You know, and, and he promises you in the Bible, if you read Malachi, that if you, you pay your 10%, give God what's God and Caesar's what's Caesar's, He'll open the, the gates of heaven and pour out blessings that you can't receive. Now, maybe I'm lucky, but I've, my whole life, I have never wanted for anything. I've never been without a job. I went through war and didn't worry about coming home because either way, I come home here or I go home there. So I, 
worship a loving God. I don't know who's scaring the hell out of Bert, but it's not my God. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. 843-661-0937. I didn't see the last hour and a half coming, but I've kind of enjoyed it. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I had some other things to, to talk about, but um, this is an interesting conversation. Take a break. Back in a few. Hey, I do want to say that scheduled to appear via radio or via phone is Ralph Norman at about 8.15 this morning. I got in touch with um, Ralph's chief of staff worked for me when I was lieutenant governor, and Ralph was actually a candidate for lieutenant governor, got out of that race and, uh, and ran for Congress. But um, but but I talked to, to the campaign, excuse me, I talked to the office yesterday, and he's supposed to be with us at about 8.15 this oh, morning. And, uh, and Ralph's in the middle of this budget debate and, you know, whether to fund Ukraine, whether they're anonymous and CR or, or appropriated. So Ralph Norman will be with us, Congressman from Rock Hill, at 8.15 this morning. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina, good morning. You're on. Yeah, morning, fellas. Um, I believe people are still religious. They just don't use the word Jesus as much as they used to. Because like with the Internet, um, there's good and there's bad with it. I didn't know until probably about 10 years ago that in 1600, the council of, I forget what it was, changed the name from Yeshua to Jesus. Now, the Bible says, don't call me no other name. There's power in his name. But they purposely changed the name from Yeshua to Jesus, but people don't do their homework. I don't mind religion. Just people do their homework on how a religion started, who started a religion, everything that goes along with it. But my call, Ken, my call is, I'm a brother. And me and a guy had a conversation yesterday about Am I a brother? Am I a brother? And crony. Am I a brother? Nah, nah. Okay, okay. No, uh, but, uh, now, oh, you're my brother, though, but no, you're not brother. <laughs> oh, you're my brother. <laughs> but, okay, we had about capitalism. And I said to a, a brother, America is crony capitalism. I said in 19, I believe it was 60-something, whenever you made the laws where no one could own land except for a white man, whenever you capitalized all the jobs of power in America, as far as from political to the government, any job of power, a white man on that, that position. And then after law, after years has passed by, you cut that law out and say affirmative action or whatever. That's not capitalism. If you make everything accessible for the white man to own everything and, and control everything, and now you say, oh, it's America. Anybody can come up and just uh, um, you, you bootstrap on your own business or whatever. We started as a crony capitalism country to people other than white people. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, sure we started that way. But, Anthony, would you agree that we've tried to address that in meaningful fashion? We try to be more equitable about who gets to participate in the economy, who gets to enjoy success. Um, the same virtues of hard work and dedication and perseverance apply to whites, black, Asians, Hispanics. I mean, wouldn't you agree that we're a work in progress and we probably addressed the inequalities of our economy better than any nation that's ever existed? I will give you that, Ken. But if I was to go to your house, Ken, and rob you and do whatever to you, then I come back and tell you that I apologize and give you a little bit of money. I can't tell you what satisfies you from being discriminated or robbed against whatever and saying, yeah, now you should be satisfied. That's not how it goes. The person who is a victim should have a voice on what it takes for them to be satisfied, like reparations or whatever. But it's not for the person who did the, the, the bad stuff to tell somebody, now you should be satisfied because even even in the 60s, we had redlining, gerrymandering. Um, we got that now. Uh, we still have uh, mass incarceration where we have um, private prisons, and they have to fill them prisons. 
So that's why the drug rate, like right now, they got a law saying that, you know, if, if you sell the drugs, whatever, the, the fentanyl is killing everybody, then they want to give you more sentences. But who, for the pharmaceutical company, is going to jail who put out all them pills and all that money, whatever? It's still the same system. It's just a different cover-up saying that, no, we, 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 uh, we try to make it right between white and black, whatever, though. But under the line, it's still the same thing. But it's private system and the healthcare system, everything. It's still there, kids. But, but Anthony, I mean, but Anthony okay, but, but do you believe that the Democrat Party, 90% of African Americans vote Democrat? Oh, no, no, do, no. Do you believe the Democrat Party is trying to create more prosperity in the African American community or more dependency? Ken, we joined the Democratic Party because of the Workers' Union. That was the most racist party there was. We joined their party. But but, but, but I, I want to go back to my question party. now. Do, do you believe the Democrats' desire is to have more African-Americans gainfully employed, making a good living, uh, providing for their families, buying multiple vehicles, enjoying the fruits and benefits of their labor, or do the Democrats wish the African-Americans to stay dependent upon, you know, the, the government programs that allow them to, to kind of keep their head above water because – this program does this, and this program does. See, that's my that's. I don't understand that. Oh, but you I, like him. But but you said it earlier. I'm not you're a brother. Right. I'm not. I'm not a brother. So I don't understand Listen. what it's like to be in the African American community. But I look at the Democrats' war on poverty, and it's led to more poverty. I look at the Democrats' claim of uplifting or lifting African Americans out of poverty, and it doesn't work. It's not happening. I just wonder why African Americans still vote for Democrats when it's obvious to me that Democrats look as African-Americans as kind of a pawn in the game to keep them in power. Ken, you are absolutely right about the Democrats, but where's the other side? Everything that... Every, every oh, we, we, that we, suck, um, we, we suck at engaging the African-American community. Y'all don't, exactly. Republicans don't stand up for us and say, y'all doing this wrong to the Africans or whatever. Y'all don't do that. Y'all just go along with it because it's not y'all name on the policy. Y'all don't stop it now. So we have nowhere to go to as African-Americans. The positive, the Democratic, um, whatever that we went, it was the most racist there was. Only reason we did it because we joined with our pockets. We joined because of the workers' union. But we knew that the claim was over there. We knew that, I don't want to say the, the J name, but they was over there. You know what I'm saying? And neither one of them have our best interests at heart at all. But, but Ken, we're, as, as African-Americans, we're not worried about no rednecks or no Klan or, or them people because they don't have the power to affect our lives. The people who, who do, are you right, the Democratic and Republican policymakers, those are the ones that keep us going against each other, us poor people, black and white, but they are the ones that is really hurting us, but they're hurting y'all too, though. Thank you, Anthony. So and, 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 and I'll say this. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. And I'll say this before we take our break. When I say America first, and somebody says, okay, what does that mean to you? I mean, I don't have any idea what it means to Josh or Rev or, or Anthony. America first to me means policies that advance the prosperity of the American working class. I didn't say the white working class or the Hispanic working class, the Asian uh, working class, the African-American work. The working class and empowers the family, encourages man and woman to get married and have a family. The American way of life is subsequent to that. So, so that's what it means to me. And, and I would love to see African-Americans seriously consider policies of J.D. Vance and some of these others that, I mean, globalism is not bad for just a white American worker. It's bad for the African-American worker. 
Um, intervention is not bad for the American working class, just white people. I mean, it's African-Americans and Hispanics and all these people. That's my, I mean, that's my dream. You know, I have a dream, so to speak. And that dream is that there will be a coalescing of the American workers, black, white, red, green, yellow. And, and they realize that, you know, over the long run, these policies are better for you and you having upward mobility in the economy, you creating a family and a life, um, not dependent upon, you know, uh, this government program paying this and that government program paying that. I mean, that's indentured servitude as far as I'm concerned. You know, uh, you vote for this party and this party gives you X. And that's just not, to me, the American way. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Ralph Norman, congressman who has been in the middle of this budget debate and uh, the motion to vacate. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Matt Gates yesterday uh, made a motion to vacate. First time since 1910, and it's never been successful. I mean, the motion to vacate has never taken a speaker. And, and one of the concessions McCarthy made to become speaker was a single member could make a motion to vacate. I mean, that once again, that and, and but Gates says, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, there'll be a vote by Wednesday. And um, I don't, I think three members, all Republican plus Gates have committed uh, to support the motion to vacate, to replace Speaker McCarthy. You know, at times I get real frustrated and bothered with some of the terminology in politics today, uh, right wing extremism, a threat to democracy. That's pretty extreme as far as I'm concerned. To do something that hasn't been done since 1910, I mean, you're going to depend on Democrats, and then what? I mean, let, let's say that McCarthy, and Kevin McCarthy, I think was wrong. I mean, I think he made a mistake in going behind the Republicans' back and promising some of the Democrats or negotiating with the Democrats about Ukraine funding. But if you're not Speaker, you have the luxury of, of second-guessing everything that happens in that chamber. So I, I do think that Gates is, I mean, he has the right to do it. And the concession was made, but I think it really paints Republicans in a negative light because the, the argument of extremism be, becomes more accepted. I mean, that does seem to be a bit extreme for one guy to know he's got three other votes and depending on, I mean, if McCarthy's replaced is going to be replaced by Democrats. I mean, the large majority of Republicans, and I think you've got to understand, guys, that McCarthy has a hard job, and he's going to get some things right and some things wrong. And you're going to agree with him sometimes and disagree with him other times. But the motion to vacate, that, that's a pretty extreme measure as far as I'm concerned. But Matt Gates has a brand. Here we go. You know, he's probably got a marketing agent. A brand. He had a gaggle of reporters around him, and these guys enjoy uh, the spotlight and the moment in the sun I just think it really validates some of what the Democrats say when the argument is, you know, those extreme Republicans, you know, some of those extreme MAGA Republicans, they always throw that MAGA in. And, guys, I'm telling you, if they weren't worried about you, they wouldn't say MAGA so much. But there's a reason they're trying to identify MAGA as an extreme political movement. They know how many of you there are. I read a story yesterday. Um, One of the bright stars of the Republican donor class. In other words, the guy, if the Republican donor class, I mean, it was Haley and DeSantis and they've kind of decided, and you got to believe, I don't know if rich people talk like this, <laughs> but if they do, they probably got together in Davos and said, 
hey, we tried Nikki and Ron, and they can't whip Trump. <laughs> so, so who out there can? And Glenn Youngkin is a name that is, uh, has kind of gained a lot of traction here recently. He's having an event October 17 and 18 at one of the um, – well, one of the ah, one of the historic hotels resorts in Virginia called the Red Vest Retreat, and Yunkin is inviting some of the heavy hitters in a Democrat donor class, uh, the circle of Democrat, uh, excuse me, Republican donor class, and uh, it'll be interesting. And I I don't know that they talk like this, but but I would imagine you know take a sip of Dom Perignon and say we tried Ron he can't whip him, we tried Nikki she can't whip him. Wonder if I'm Yunkin can whip him. I'll give you an answer. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, money doesn't equal votes. I mean, I know to some degree there's a correlation there, but the truth is Trump's at about 50% ish nationally. Um, he's at 44 in Iowa. He's at 41 or two in New Hampshire. He's, I don't know, 60 in South Carolina. And that includes Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Um, I mean, it's as Robert Cahaley said Friday, to believe somebody other than Donald Trump is going to win the Republican primary is kind of a um, it's a pipe dream at this moment. Now, Robert added the caveat of the convictions. You know, what would the impact of a conviction have? I don't know. I don't, you know, I love these people who say, well, I mean, this is likely to happen. No, you don't know. I mean, nobody knows what's likely to happen or not. Um, I, I do believe, and the donors believe this, and the donors are frustrated about the um, the trial in New York, you know, the valuation of property and the misrepresenting of what the value of the property is. The donor in the Republican Party know that that's going to empower Trump. I mean, he's going to be even more popular once they make um, once they and then Trump stands in front of a judge or outside of a court in in the damn courtroom, not outside in the courtroom, and says rogue judge and you know unequal application of justice, and we did. Everything you ready? You ready for one of his words? We did everything beautifully. You know, it was a beautiful uh, financial report that we filled out, and I probably underestimated the brand that is um <laughs> is Trump. And I'm going like, you've never underestimated anything. I mean, you you you're a lot of things. Um, uh, humility is not something that um that people relate or correlate Trump uh, to. But but anyway, it, it'll be interesting to watch how this trial affects the polls. Um. I got a buddy of mine. He's not quite a never Trumper, but he's close. And he sent me a text yesterday with a sense of humor. Um, you got any of those red baseball caps left? And I, what, what do you mean? Really? I sit back. What do you mean? He said, this is absurd. I mean, the absurdity of this trial is going to make me vote for Donald Trump. Uh, might be even, you know, wow. yeah, but it, it, and that's happening all over. That's not anecdotal. I mean, I'm convinced of that. Um, anybody that knows anything about business now, a lot don't, but if you know anything about business, you know, that an appraisal and an assessment are two separate things. I mean, maybe Letitia James doesn't know that. I mean, maybe the judge doesn't know that. I mean, they're highly educated bureaucrats. Maybe they don't have a clue, but there's a big difference in an assessment and an appraisal. And you know, it's a victimless crime. There's no, the bank's got paid back. And, and I was thinking about, I mean, do you really believe that the bank will take Trump at his word. I mean, in other words, if Trump borrows X number of dollars with this as collateral, do you really believe that the bank says, well, I mean, Donald's going to tell us exactly what it's worth. He's not going to embellish or exaggerate. I mean, no, the bank does its due diligence and they do what's necessary to prove or not alone. But the assessment has nothing to do with the appraisal. 
It, it really is. I mean, I, it's, it's really hard to know what the appraisal is. I mean, the piece of property is worth whatever someone will pay. But, you know, maybe in New York, in some of the legal circles and bureaucratic agencies, they don't understand the difference in an assessment and an appraisal. I did do some back of napkin math. Um, Rush Limbaugh sold his 24,000 square foot uh, Palm Beach home for $155 million. The judge is saying Donald Trump's 62,000 square foot kind of sort of palace private residence is only worth $15 million. Um, I mean, they, you know, once again, the deal with the bank is separate than the deal with the taxing agency. Ad valorem taxes are based on assessments. The deal Trump makes with banks is based on appraisals. I would imagine very complicated appraisals to collateralize debt and secure debt. And anyway, I doubt Letitia James knows very much about Trump's business world or, or and apparently there's a statute of limitations issue too that but, but, came and, up yesterday. And, and, but that still frustrates me that we're referring. I mean, we should be talking about the difference in assessments and, and appraisals right. and the banking relationship with the business guy. But anyway, uh, speaking of business guys, we have with us a member of the United States Congress who is a business person, understands uh, some of the business interest of our government, Congressman Ralph Norman. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Glad to be with you. So do you care to give an opinion on what's happening to Trump in New York before we get to some of the um, some of the budget questions I have for you, Congressman? Oh, yeah. What's happening to Donald Trump is what's happening to so many people under this administration. They've weaponized every agency. And in Donald Trump's case, you, you exa- I just heard a little bit of it. But, you know, going back, I think, 2011, uh, and the statute of limitations has run out anyway. But, you know, what somebody... Uh, gets on an assessment versus what the uh, formal appraisal where you get an MAI appraisal and the banks make their own call and they have their own requirements. And so this is just, they're trying to search for anything to disqualify him. And it's really unfortunate because that, that can happen to any American. And it's just, it, it's not fair. It shouldn't happen to him or anybody for that matter. And, um, you know, they made their case known. They ran for office to prosecute and tie up Donald Trump. And it's really just making his popularity go up, to be honest with you. He's more popular today post-day um, in court than he was <laughs> than he was yesterday. Ralph, I want to get in the weeds with you for a second. The, the, the MAGA movement, the American First movement, has been referred to by the mainstream media as extreme. I don't know what is extreme about some of the things you talk about in advance and, and believe in, but yesterday when, when, when Matt Gates, for the first time since 1910 made a motion to vacate, that could be perceived as a bit extreme. Where are you on what Matt did yesterday? Well, I thought what Matt did, the timing was wrong. Uh, and I told Matt, we met with him right before we went to the floor, and I said, Matt, Matt, can you hold off? And the first I knew of what he was going to do is like most Americans when he appeared on CNN and some of the other news outworks to say he was going to do this. You know, we've got so many problems in this country now. We've got a border that's being overrun. we got lawlessness. Uh, the congressman last night got hijacked. Uh, we have... You know, so many issues, spending, and I was was hoping he could hold up. Now, what he's saying is right. Kevin, when we did what we did in January, and I was one of the five that withheld the votes, he was supposed, he promised single-subject bills. Uh, He promised to have the 12 appropriations finished in June and July. Instead, he's done everything opposite. 
I mean, he let us out for a month, and the speaker is the leader. You can you can say what you want, but the speaker sets the the direction. He sets the tone of what's being debated because he's the only one that can okay the bills that come before the the house. But what he's you know saying is right, uh, Matt is. But you know you've got to have a plan. You know who's going to replace him? is now right before we've got 44 or 43 days to come up with a plan uh, on spending. And I'm absolutely, spending is the cancer in this country. And if we don't get this under control uh, and agree on something, then the whole country suffers, along with the fact we have an invasion at the border. Uh, This country has, has more illegals from every country in the world that's exceeding the population of South Carolina. That's that we know of right now. And, um, you know, it's some serious things. Now, I don't know. I'm listening to both sides. We'll, we will, in, in 30 minutes, I'll head to a caucus meeting and where Kevin will talk and, and, you know, I guess make the case why he thinks this is wrong, which I know he's, you know, he doesn't think is justified. But has he done everything that, common sense things we asked for in January. No, he hasn't. And he hadn't pushed it. And that's on him. He put himself in this position. Nobody else put him in it. But you can't you can't promise different things to different people and be swayed by the wind according to what you hear last. And he's kind of guilty of that, to be honest with you. Let, let me ask you a question. So we've got a 45-day window here to address some of the issues that you believe are genuinely concerning. And I followed about everything you've said, and, I, and I'm and i with you. You know I am on the debt being the cancer. The debt will eventually be our demise if we don't address it in meaningful fashion. But why should the American people believe in 45 days you guys won't be asked to vote on another CR or omnibus bill? What, what about this is different than all these other times we were told, give us a little bit of time, we'll appropriate, we'll draft spending bills, and we'll get this government back in financial um, order. It's just not going. They're not going to do it. I mean, in 40, 43 days, we'll be faced with another question. And my my question at the conference that we will go to this morning is: Where is leadership when the Senate turns down? Let's say we pass all twelve approach bills. The Senate's not going to agree with it. Are we going to take uh, sh- uh, closing payments of, of shutting the government down? for X number of days, or are you going to, Kevin, are you going to say, uh, you know, you will not accept the shutdown under, under any condition? I've had it. If that's it, I mean, we're going to, the government shut this country down for a year and a half. The government shut, took school children out of schools for a year and a half. And if, if the, one of the levers we have is closing down payments, uh, from the government uh, until we get some type of agreement. And the Senate's not going to give it to us. It's controlled by the uh, it's controlled by the Democrats. And to be honest with you, so many of our so-called Republicans are not Republicans. They're spendthrifts. And you, that we've got a plan, I think, that's going to be presented to us from the Senate to give Ukraine $80 billion, $80 billion of money we don't have the interest alone is $20,000 per second. And it's going to be the demise of the country, and I'm simply not going along with it. Now, I, what what way I vote on Kevin, I'm waiting. Uh, we, we'll discuss it some more. We just found out about it yesterday. 
and we'll see how it turns out. Ralph, what would you like to see happen to spending? I mean, I've heard post-pandemic, pre-pandemic, 8% across the board spending cuts. I mean, I've done the math. We've got a conundrum on our hands, and it's going to take really, I mean, just disciplined people making very disciplined decisions. But how do you believe we need to begin addressing the debt? The way we need to begin it is is the bill that actually failed. But you set a top-line limit, and we had a, a trillion four. It eventually went to a trillion five. Now, this is that's the top-line total dollar spent on the travel appropriations. And the Senate will come back $3 trillion, $4 trillion, and God knows what. It's a Pelosi-Schumer bill, so you can imagine how that's, what, what the number is going to be. Along with it, you have a, a strict border security plan. We just cannot keep opening this border up. You see what's happening in New York. And uh, preview coming attractions, guess where a lot of them are coming? South Carolina. And so we're all border states now. That's the basis, a top-line limit, strict uh, border patrol, border control where he has to uh, build some of the, the finished building the wall, where he has to not cut fences uh, but to let these targets in because the terror watch list is growing. It's not fair for the police. It's not fair for our schools. It's not fair for the medical profession. Any anybody can look and see what's happening in New York uh, is is a travesty. But it's coming to every state in this country, and our government is promoting it. There, it's, it's on our government dime that these illegals are coming to all the different states, and particularly the red states, to dilute the voting. And finally, Kevin, I'll say this: what they're doing. Why they're doing that is power. They're giving them driver's licenses. They're giving them Social Security numbers. And, you know, if we lose our elections, I mean, it's you lose, you might as well be a Venezuela or Cuba. And there is a concerted effort to make this happen. And that's why we've got to fight. And that's why the leader uh, is so important. And so Kevin, as Speaker of the House, has got to realize that. And I don't know whether he will or not. Last question. Appreciate your time. Congressman Ralph Norman with us from Rock Hill, um, doing a great job, kind of trying to exert some fiscal discipline in our in our nation's government. But, but it, it, I mean, I've read, and I don't know this to be true, but I've read that, that the speaker told you one thing or the caucus one thing about Ukraine funding and then went across the aisle and said some different things to the Democrats. Where's Congressman Norman on Ukraine funding specifically? Zero funding for Ukraine. Uh, and a lot of it's a contentious topic up here, but why we continue to borrow more money uh, to, to send to a country? Yes, we want Ukraine to be successful against Russia, but we've done our fair share, and it's time for other countries. And let's say if the debate is, if, if this administration can reasonably administer it, which I don't think, I have no confidence that the Biden administration, the money goes where it should. Let's say if let's have that debate, but the problem is uh, we don't have the money, and there's no willingness to offset any of the spending. I mean, we had amendments the other uh, day on the floor, which we were cutting the salary of the very bureaucrats that are fighting Americans, fighting our American taxpayers. And we only got about a third of them. We had over a hundred of our Republicans side with the Democrats on cutting the salaries, many of which were two hundred thousand dollars. Of, of bureaucrats in this administration. I mean, that's the kind of battle we've got. And that's why it's so important on these upcoming elections.
Congressman, we appreciate your time. Thank you a lot. I know you got a caucus meeting to get to, but um, appreciate you joining us this morning. Congressman Ralph Norman of Rock Hill. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I mean, he's in the midst of it. He's really and truly, and I know Ralph fairly well. Um, R- Ralph's a business guy, and, and Ralph can be stubborn. I mean, he gets accused a lot of times for not for making things more difficult than they than they should be. But but I think the argument of the debt, and there has to be some ability to restrain at some point in time. Our you know our our I get it. I mean, I, I get what Ralph is saying. It's just going to it's going to take some real hard decisions. I mean, it really and truly is. I mean, you got top line, bottom line. You got, you know, I mean, there, there's anyway. It's um, we're a, we're a trillion dollar. Well, we're actually about one point seven five trillion out of sorts this year. But but the the estimates moving forward are somewhere between one and one and a half trillion dollars. Excuse, yeah, one and a half trillion dollars yearly that we're going to run um, deficits. Let's take a break. And I'll I say to... he's one of the few voices in Washington that that really is focused on this issue, but, and but has very been. few others. And, and as he said, even in, in a Republican-controlled House, there's not the willingness because everybody knows the dirty secret. I mean, the dirty secret is a balanced budget includes what entitlement reform. I mean, there's no other way around it. In in a a balanced budget. And deficit reduction requires entitlement reform. We're going to be forced to go there. Why not do it somewhat under our terms? Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jacob in Florence. Good morning, Jacob. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. Excellent conversation this morning. I'd like to chime in. Ken, you mentioned that you are a flawed man and a sinner. Well, no, that is the first step to becoming a follower of Christ. We have to admit our flaws. So I I believe you're a good man. And by the way, really good callers this morning. Um, I want to go to to that comment you made earlier about the church developing warriors. Well, let's remember that this battle is a spiritual one, not a physical battle. We must never resort to any form of violence. Of course, if our lives are in danger, that's different, right? We protect ourselves and, and the ones we love, but we, we must avoid violent situations. In a, in a spiritual battle, we fight not with guns or with knives, but rather with spiritual weapons. And one of the most powerful of these weapons, Ken, is the truth. We speak truth. We live truth. And, and we breathe truth. In the beginning, God created man and woman. That's a truth. Can men get pregnant? No, only women bear children. That's truth. Love is the most powerful of these weapons. But we saw in the summer of 2020 how these violent uh, riots were perpetuated by hateful groups like BLM and Antifa. The Christian church should never engage in this type of violence. And we don't embrace these rioters by hanging their flags on, on the church's front steps. So we, we, we must love one another, Ken, and, and we do that by respecting each other and doing the right thing. We speak truth. And the truth is that only God Almighty can fix the problems of this world and, and of our country. We must follow his direction. And I agree with a previous caller that, that said we must stand. Well, I say the same thing. Let's stand for what we believe in and know to be true. Uh, let let me ask you this. I, I, I want to get your take. Yes, Are you still there? Yes, sir. I'm okay. Here. I, I want to get your take on this. I, I mean, I, I, I'll agree with everything you say. Should the spirituality within lead to an intellectual understanding? I mean, we're not throwing punches. We're not driving cars through buildings. We're not beating people up. I totally agree with that. 
That's in no way, shape, or form a way to respectfully disagree and advance things that you firmly believe in. But but I, I've always believed that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong here. I have a uh, kind of kind of a spirituality that leads me in a certain place. But I've got to be intellectually equipped to know what I believe in. I mean, in other words, doesn't that doesn't that doesn't that Holy Spirit convict you to do the work necessary? to have an intellectual understanding of where the the trouble spots are, the minefields lie, the the issues that need to be addressed. Is that is that in other words, you can't just go to church and, and hope God places in you that this spirituality that that makes you bold and and you know you'll stand your ground. You've still got to do the necessary work to have an intellectual understanding of what it is you believe in and why. Yes, Ken, I, and I'll respond, and, and I agree with that. We have to take action, right? We we just can't stay idle. We have to take action. The Holy Spirit moves us to do the right thing. What we should never do is engage in violence, because that's exactly what these leftist groups want to do. They want to uh, entice us. They want to they want to rile us up so that we we fight back. And the moment we fight, the moment we throw a punch, we lose. We fight with intelligence. We fight intellectually with spirituality, Ken. We, we, don't, we never resort to violence nor hateful words. We, we fight a smart battle. And if we do that, we will win, Ken. Because, again, if, the only thing we need to do is just stand. Just stand. Believe. Believe in what you know is true. The things that your parents and your grandparents taught you. The things that we know are true in, in, in our country. We know we're a, this, this country is not perfect. It's flawed. But I, I believe this country has tried to do the right thing, and that's because people believe in, in, in goodness. People believe in the things that, that were brought about uh, the Judeo-Christian principles, and, and that's what we must adhere to. Now, th- this is a country that's divided, but I believe it's, it's divided not because we're different. No, I think we're all the same. You know, it doesn't matter, like, what, what background we come from, if, if, you know, what color skin we are. That does not matter. What matters is what we believe in. That's what unites us. And I, and I would say the, the vast majority of Americans and people here in South Carolina, I believe we're good people. We're people that believe in God. We embrace the, the things that are good. So let's not fight the, uh, the leftist way of fighting because we lose we we can't resort to those rules we have to we have to use intelligence and 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 can we will win we just we just can't cave in to to this evil that's that's uh fallen upon our nation thank you for the call appreciate that josh got a question for you is it true that a woman can have a child and a man can't correct is it true that two plus two equals four it is is it a truth that you should be able to draw Social Security at 67? No. That's ambiguous. And, and that's the intellectual part of this. I mean, I, I, my, I mean I, it doesn't take me but a second to say, no, a man can't have a child. And so, so there are certain truths that are applicable in every walk of life. The reason I brought up the intellectual understanding, what is the truth about Social Security? What is the truth about defense spending? What is the truth about infrastructure and education? I mean, th- those are very squishy 
numbers. I mean, I don't know exactly what we should spend on infrastructure education. I don't know exactly what the numbers should be before someone could get the benefit of Social Security or Medicare. I mean, the government says it's 65 today. The government says it's 67 in a month, in my case, to get Social Security. But that's not a truth. I mean, that's a debate. And, and those most intellectually equipped normally win the debate. And I would argue that a lot of conservatives have neglected the journey necessary to understand these issues we complain and, and, and you know, and, and don't like. I mean, we don't like the debt. How many Americans really understand the debt? I mean, if, if you don't like the debt, but I told you the only way to address the debt is you work two years longer and pay for your health insurance two years longer. I mean, these entitlement programs may be fair, may not be fair. I'm not talking about fair. Fair comes in October. It is October. <laughs> So the fair will be here yeah. soon. But but you see where I'm headed. I mean, I think there are certain truths that are timeless. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, we talk a lot about those truths, those anchors and bedrocks in our existence. But but what is the truth about infrastructure spending? I mean, that lies in the body politic, right? I mean, is there, is there, is there a truth about the number we should spend on our nation's educational systems? Um, no. I mean, that's a debate, right? And those who win the debates are what? They're most intellectually prepared to debate those, those issues. So, so when we become, when we make our minds up to be more engaged in politics, I think simultaneously we must, we must make a conscious decision to be more informed, to understand the issues we're forming opinions on, to be able to defend our positions and arguments we make. And I think, you know, um, well, I mean, I think, I think we're spending too much on infrastructure. Why? I just do. I just do. I mean, I, th I think we're not spending enough money on education. Why do you believe that, Rip? I, I just do. I, I just do. No, I mean, I, I think we owe the, the, the seriousness of the debate has to be uh, kind of a serious understanding of, of the issues. And it goes back to the Seinfeld watcher. I mean, you know, when I watch Seinfeld, I'm on a 30-minute vacation. But, but when I start reading the Wall Street Journal, Nash Review, New York Times, Washington Post, I'm, I'm working. I mean, I'm trying to better understand. I'm trying to substantiate these opinions that I believe to be true. See, I know the truth about a man and a woman. I mean, I, I know that. I don't need to read a, a dissertation about whether or not a man can have a child. I know better than that. That is a truth, an, an empirical truth. But when it comes to spending and, and Ukraine funding. You see where I'm headed. I mean, there are a lot of things out there that, that are ambiguous. I mean, we don't know the exact answer. I mean, who knows exactly how much money we should spend on, uh, on infrastructure? Who knows how, exactly what the age should be for Social Security benefit? I mean, that, that's kind of a moving target. Well, I mean, people are living longer. They should be expected to work a little longer. Healthcare has gotten so unbelievably expensive. People should understand we can't afford. Well, I mean, they do if they have an intellectual understanding, but if they're morons <laughs> and they've been trained to be morons and conditioned to be morons, they don't have that. So I agree that the spirituality part of this is important, but there has to be an intelligentsia component where people genuinely invest the time to understand. Doesn't mean we're going to agree. I mean, Josh may form an intellectually based opinion on, you know, um, Social Security. Rev may, and I may, and all three of us may sit down together at lunch one day, and Josh says, hey, I read a lot about Social Security. Here's where I've landed. And Josh, I don't land there. I mean, I land 
two years longer than you do, a year and a half longer than you do, 20% less than you do. Um, the privatization might rev. I mean, there, there's no dishonesty in that. There's just a kind of, kind of an intelligent, an intelligent way that we all got to those conclusions. But I think Rev and Josh and I, if I gave Rev and Josh assignments and say, hey, by, by tomorrow at 845, I want you to tell me whether a woman and man can both have kids. You know, can, can both become pregnant. I think Rev and Josh would say, I don't need them until yeah, 12. Wouldn't I, mean, take I don't, till I don't tomorrow. need them until tomorrow. I mean, I know that to be true. But if I said, Rev, what do we need to do with Social Security? Josh, what do we need to do with, with Medicare? I think both would, would say, hey, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know they're broken. I know they don't work in their current format, but I honestly don't know what we need to do moving forward. That's the, the effort that most Americans are not willing to give, to understand. I mean, we complain about the debt, but, but if you told Americans, if you told average Americans, you know what 75% of the debt's driven by? Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Shoot. Really? So it's not all those roads and bridges and educations and schools and no, it's it's not that. The recurring expense of entitlement programs and the the fact that people are living much, much, much longer, I mean that's that's the problem. But 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 n- none of us know exactly. There is no truth. We, the truth is something needs to be done. The truth is nobody knows exactly uh what 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 that something that needs to be done is take a break back in a few eight four three six six one oh nine three seven little blast from the past super oh, yeah. tramp i'll tell you they sound <laughs> about like or whomever what's the lead singer for super tramp's name uh, uh roger uh it's kind of a weird last name yeah yeah but anyway he sounds about like he did uh in the day i heard him on a youtube video from like two years ago uh just after covid and he sounded about like he did Back in the day, Roger Hodgson. There you Hodgson. go. There you go. And, uh, but I, but you know when you came out of that song, you sounded like a rock and roll DJ a little bit there. You say, "Hey, it's another blast from the past." Okay, yeah, <laughs> that was good. Is that called puking? <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, it, it was. Yeah, I'm not puking. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here is Marvin in Lakeview. Good morning. Good morning. You're on the I air, Marvin. Good morning. Yes, sir. Ken, how are you doing? I'm well. Uh, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm listening to you talk about Social Security, and I'm 64, just turned 64, and I was looking at my Social Security estimates just the other night, and between me and my employer, we have paid in over $359,000 for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And if that money had been put into a savings account with interest, there would be no problems, and I could retire now without any problems. But now they're talking, you know, I could only get so much a month, and if I die, my family doesn't even get what I've got left. And then, you know, they're talking about there's problems with Social Security. They've taken money out several times. If they had put all this money they've got in the last few years back into Social Security and the interest for that, Social Security would be all right. Plus, they're paying people that never paid in some Social Security money for children and stuff like that. So the problem is they're paying people that have never paid in. The problem, the solution would be to stop paying people that never paid in and just pay people that paid in and pay according to how much they paid in. 
Thank you. Appreciate that. I mean, I've tried to explain where I stand on Social Security. My solutions are based on the current model. I mean, I don't have the ability to change the model. The, the model is so deeply flawed. I mean, let's level with ourselves, guys. Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. I mean, it is, it is the definition of a Ponzi scheme. They need young workers paying in to meet the obligations they promised for old, older workers. I mean, that's just, it's money in, money out. There is some of that. There is a, I mean, I, I guess to some degree, there, there's a trust fund. There ain't a lockbox because they raid the trust fund um, every time they need some extra money. They move money around. Um, it's almost like kiting checks, to be honest with you, is kind of what they do. But the solution, the fundamental solution to Social Security is almost impossible to happen because there's no way to pay the retirees their benefits that have been promised and owed. And it's not your fault because you're 65 and somebody made a deal. And, and you know, when they made the deal with you, average life expectancy was 71, now it's 79. So there's eight years of 10,000 people a day turning 65 that we got to figure out a way to make the math work. So, so there, there's an enormous deficit there, but, but the, the best answer to social security to make America a better place, and this would be America first in the name of pro-American worker, pro-American family is to allow the caller to own the amount of money he has that, that he's had taken out of his check. His employer is matched and he could invest in, um, you know, reasonably non-risk investment portfolios. And every, nearly every American worker, not all, but nearly every American worker, I've done the math. Rev knows this. I've taken the average income and I've taken the average interest rate of the S&P 500 over the last 30 years. The average American worker, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, people who are making $200,000 a year. And I'm not talking about somebody making $18,000. i am talking about the average. All I can do is extrapolate this data from the average. The average American income investing you know that percent and then it's matched by uh, the employer i think it's seven ends up being about seven and a half percent somewhere um there about but but if that if that money were invested in the s p that worker would have somewhere north of a million dollars it would be a transferable asset you know what builds more independence in today's world than anything financial security i mean i'm not saying being wealthy but but imagine um, if you are somebody who worked 30 years and you're waiting on the government to send you, you know, $2,500 a month or $2,000 or, or $3,000 a month, depending on how much you made and how many years, how many quarters you worked. Um, and that's kind of what it is. It's quarter by quarter and it's your average. Anyway, uh, there, there's a formula they use and it comes to a certain number. I think the average benefit in America today is about $1,800, but, but about 50% make over 2000 a month. So, so let's just say, for argument's sake, that the the average worker is going to get twenty five hundred dollars a month. That's probably a little high, probably closer to two thousand dollars a month. But, but you're so so, but you don't have a transferable asset. So the day you die, your family scrambles. They may have to sell a farm, sell a house, do whatever they need to do to keep their head above water. But, but imagine that that at your demise. Your family, your wife and kids inherit a million dollars in an investment portfolio. That that's the way Social Security should have been designed, mm. should have been constructed. What a missed um, opportunity! What I mean, it, it would be the greatest financial. What are we told? The greatest asset in our financial lives are our home, right? I mean, that that wouldn't be the case any longer. But but I believe that the government intentionally 
did not allow that to happen because they knew how independent and, and, and free-spirited America could become. That, that's the notion of a Democrat. A Democrat likes the government to have the upper hand. The Democrat likes the government to be able to kind of dictate the rules and conditions of how the masses live. I mean, by nature, liberal Democrats are sympathetic and trusting of government. So if you believe that the people left to their own volition could be dangerous one to another and not construct an equitable and level playing field, then we got to have this heavy hand of government. Well, that, that's part of this. In other words, if you've worked your entire life, what, what are you counting on? Who are you, depend, whether you love government, hate government, trust government, doesn't hate government, or doesn't trust government, who's going to send you a check? Who's going to take your, care of your health care at 65? See, see, the idea of America is less government. Once again, for the 10,347th time, the Constitution was not intended to protect people from, or excuse me, government from people, but rather people from its government. So imagine the, the freedom you would experience if you had a million dollars in an investment account. That's not what the government wants. The government today, the Democrat, and if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that the majority of people in government have this conceptual belief, explain the six or seven counties around Washington and why they vote 80% Democrat. I mean, if, if you've got, if, you've, if you're working in government and, and power is a zero-sum game, right? I mean, you don't create new power. I mean, power is a zero-sum game. Um, the government has an enormous amount of power. You're a bureaucrat working in government. Why would you vote for Republicans who want to reduce the amount of power and influence you have over the system you work as a part of? Why would you minimize uh, the importance of your job? I mean, if you're a Democrat working to the federal government, here's a Republican arguing government's too big, spends too much money. Here's a Democrat saying, no, it doesn't. You work in government. What is your natural compulse? I mean, what are you naturally inclined to do? Well, I mean, I'm working government, and I'm going to vote for this guy that says government's too big, spends too much money. I mean, that, that's, that's voting against my self-interest. So 80% of the collar counties, and they're largely dominated by people who work for the government in some you know, direct or indirect way, that, that's kind of where we are. That, that's where America has gotten. And I don't know how to put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, I wonder if there's a, a possibility of putting that genie uh, back in the bottle. And I don't believe all these people are evil. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying they're, they're all nefarious and they're evil and they're up to no good. No, I just think we're all self-preservationists. And if people who work in government are given an option to limit the power of government or not, guess what they're normally going to do? They're going to normally not limit the power of government because, once again, that's not in their best interest. And very few human beings are altruistic enough to vote against their personal best interest. There ain't a bunch of Mother Teresas walking the planet, is what I'm trying to say. There are far more Gordon Geckos than there are, than there are Mother um, Teresas. But, but once again, on Social Security, the, the answer should have been what George W. Bush proposed uh, you know, back pre-9-11, that would have been when he first got elected, the privatization of Social Security. Allow Dave Baker to, at the end of his work life, be in complete and total control of, an, of a million-dollar portfolio. And when Baker dies, ba Baker can draw 5% of that. He can draw, I mean, imagine if you drew 4% of that, the rule of four, 4%. Baker's got a million dollars. He says to his investment planner, Reggie Armstrong, 
hey, give me 4%. I mean, that's 40 grand a year. So, so instead of getting a $2,000 Social Security check, Rev's getting $3,500 a month. I mean, he's getting 75, 80% more money. Plus, at his demise, he can leave his wife and kids a nest egg, a million dollars that belongs to him. But we didn't construct Social Security mm-hmm. that way. And every time you go down this road, it ticks me off. Well, because mean, they could have done it. They could have set it up for the real good of the American people for generations. Or they could have set it up so they'd have more control. Right. And what did they choose? Chose control. Yeah, there you go. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Indiana. Hi, Bobby. You're on. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I just had a little question about the guy that called in on uh, saying that Biden had created 7 million jobs. I'm, I'm struggling with that. Or where do them come from? Thank you, Bobby. You pre- well, you, yeah. But that, the mindset of a of a liberal Democrat, really of a, of a, a Trump, Demo- of a Trump hating, you know, yeah, confirmed TDS suffering but, Democrat. But, but but the reality is, and, and and the truthfulness is, the government does not create jobs. I mean, the gov- I've always argued this, and and I'm a I'm a fairly conservative guy. I mean, on some of these freedom and liberty issues, I'm probably libertarian. I mean, I'm a live and let live kind of Republican. Um, but I accept government has a role. I mean, I accept regulations. I'm not a big fan of the wild, wild west. I mean, on certain issues, I am somewhat of an anarchist. I'll admit that. I mean, there are certain, my, my, my belief in anarchy is derived as a result of my frustration of government. I mean, I, I can, I can so despise what government wants to do intentionally. That makes no sense that I become somewhat of a, of an anarchist. But when I put my pragmatic hat on, and I, and I get back to a reasonable place. I'm going like, okay, um, the role of government in the affairs of the economy. The economy is the engine that drives the train, correct? I mean, it's what, that's where we collect revenue. That's where we generate productivity. Who gets to put the oil in the engine? I mean, is it good oil? Does it have good viscosity? Does it need to be changed? That's the policy. That's regulation. That's ordinances. That's statutes. That that's that's the the role. I mean, so so I would accept that government has a role, but it's not to be the engine. You can't invert it. The government is not. The government's trying to be the engine. The irony there. The government's trying to be the engine in the automobile industry right now. And I don't know if you saw this or not, but Rivian, one of the great electric vehicle companies in the world, announced yesterday that they're losing, ready, thirty three thousand dollars per truck sold. Ouch. Yeah. But that's government. Mm-hmm. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I misspoke. I said it's 7.5%. The The FICA employee match is actually 7.65%. I was off 0.15 <laughs> of 1%. 6.2 for Social Security, 1.45 uh, for Medicare. So when people say uh, about folks who don't make a lot of money, I mean, I hear this a lot. They don't pay any taxes. They do pay Taxes. I mean, they may not pay income tax, but they pay payroll tax. They pay, you know, 7.65% of every dollar they make. Now, I understand the argument of income tax, and the rich pay, you know, 15% of all the income tax collected in America, but but to suggest that people who don't make a lot of money don't pay taxes, yeah, they, they pay 7.65%. Whatever their marginal tax rate is, add 765 That's what comes out of their check, whether they like it or not. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Um, it, it, it's funny, uh, just that little point about the, the poor don't pay taxes. 
Um, every time you go to the store, what do you pay at the end of your bill? You pay sales, sales tax. tax. Okay. And if you are a low-income person, do you think you pay a percentage of your income or, or your earnings in taxes more, even if you don't pay federal taxes, than a rich person who pays their limited amount? I don't care. Right. You don't care. At all. Zero. <laughs> that, that's, that's a good answer. Um, yeah. That's, that's an that's honest good. answer. I mean, I don't know if it's a good answer. It's an honest answer. I right. don't care what percentage of your income you pay in taxes. Okay. And you do? So, so, well, I mean, like, you have a society where the 1% is growing and, and they're owning more of America every day. And the masses are becoming poorer every day. Doesn't matter who sits in the White House. Would you agree with that statement? I don't know that I agree the masses are become poorer. I think inflation is eroding away the purchasing power of the masses by irresponsible it, fiscal policy by both parties. So, but just this this inflation that is, it is affecting the poorer more than the wealthy. Would you agree? Sure. Right. And even if it wasn't inflation, we see that the percentage of wealth in America is owned by a smaller portion of Americans every year. Do you see that? I do. That is probably the genesis of America first. Well, you say that, but again, there's no solutions that are ever offered uh, by America first. I I think I just offered, I just think I offered a real solid solution, revamp social security. So it becomes a transferable asset. And the average American working family would have a million dollars to transfer to future generations. Okay, but what if they die? What if you're 30 years old and you die? What happens to your kids? Is that the government's? I mean, I don't understand what you're saying. I mean, if you die, well, 30, that's, it's, a, it's a safety net. Okay, well, you know under under today's circum, widow. If you know somebody who's become a widow in their 30s and they have children, the government, Social Security. Helps them. Okay, I'm You're willing. To, I'm willing to go there with you. I'm willing to. I mean, yeah. I mean, okay. I, I'm willing. I'm willing to put my. I'm willing to put my bottom line in my pocket for a second and listen to that. I'll hear you out, and, and I'll give that serious consideration. And, and, and the rarity of somebody dying in their 30s. What is the plan to take care of dependent children and the spouse? I, I'll, I'll that's listen that's to that. Real. I mean, I, that, that that would be the safety net. I mean, that, that I am supportive of the safety net. I just don't care much for the safety hammock. But, but, yeah, I mean, if Jeff were on the other side of the table and Jeff said that, I would say, okay, let, let's explore. Let's, let's go down that road together. Right. That is one of the considerations. The other consideration is you're not wrong to say that there should be better solutions offered to the, uh, the average person. I'd love to hear somebody explain to me why, Republican, Democrat, whoever, why you can't contribute money into an IRA for your child when they're born. I don't know if you you probably you're aware of Jim Bunting. He was a baseball player. Correct. He became a U.S. Senator. Mm-hmm. He had a proposal. He's a Republican. Uh, he had a proposal that talked about um, when a baby is born in the United States, if the if the Social Security Administration would have take five thousand dollars and put it in an interest bearing account, they would never have to pay anything for that kid's retirement. The Social Security Administration wouldn't. It, it would it would fund itself that way. There's another model that does three thousand. I mean, there's another model that says yeah. if you do three thousand, yeah, it's against the law to do it. It shouldn't be, right? Uh, so I'm all for solutions. We've all agreed that Social Security is a problem. I agree, 
um, you know, we were solvent at one point. We've got this baby boomer generation. Um, but it can't be the only thing. That's the point I'm trying to make. There has to, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, the government and a safety net has to exist in this country. And when Social Security was formed, let's, let's be honest, it was paying it forward. Like there was a group of Americans that got Social Security that never paid in. Correct. And, and that, that is how the system works, and it only could work that way. But if we're going to remain, if we're going to leave it in this current construct, we have to raise the age. I mean, there has to be an addressing of that. We, we've not adapted to people living longer. And, and, and as you said, the baby about 10,000 people a day are turning 65. We've got to adjust that. Now, I would rather see something major done. And, and Jeff, I'm not, I'm not opposed to some sort of arrangement where, where if something unexpected happens, we, we take care and, and use government. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that stubborn about what I believe to not listen to somebody who has a different opinion. So, yeah, I mean, a 30-year-old 30, a 30 Nucor, a 30-year-old construction worker dies at Nucor. Are we really going to depend on the church to take care of his wife and kid? I, I would, I'd, I'd be fully supportive of some government program that makes sure those people don't sleep in the street and aren't hungry. And, and let's not forget where this was born out of. Why was Social Security and, and this system developed? And it was the Great Depression. Correct. We saw our fellow citizens die of hunger. We, you know, Americans saw the worst that can happen. And we created a system that that can't happen again, theoretically, right? But I agree with tweaking it. We have to come up with new policies, new solutions. But there's, you know, uh, George Bush wasn't uh, necessarily wrong. Their approach was wrong of, of trying to gut Social Security. It can't be gutted. And that, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater there because there are, is a need. See, Jeff, and, I, and, I'll, and, I, and I'll say this. Th this is part of the most liberal position I hold in my life. I'm not convinced that health care shouldn't be universal. Some sort of single position. payer. I mean, I, I, I am so Medicare worried about all? But I mean, I'm so worried about putting the government in charge of it. I really and truly am. But we're half pregnant with government anyway. And it's I, something tells me. Anyway. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we don't have a free market in health care. You know that. We I don't. know that. Um, and something tells me that if we're going to be half of one and half of the other, let's be all one or all of the other. And I'm not, I mean, once again, you know me, I'm fundamentally opposed of trusting the government to do right. But, but I don't know that I can come up with a better solution for health care than allowing the government to dictate its terms and conditions. I know that's a, a liberal position, but I've thought through this and I don't see a better answer. So again, not a liberal this is not a liberal issue, okay? This is a practical issue. It's an economic issue. We have a group of uh, – our medical system right now is being overrun by these nonprofits um, that – I mean, take a look. Do you, do you see a nonprofit – I mean, all they do is invest in their hospitals and invest in, you know uh, – I'm not saying they don't work for the community, but they're not a nonprofit, are they? Many kid themselves. Well, I mean, that that goes back to the revamping of healthcare. I mean, I am I am so confused by, by the healthcare system today that I would consider about anything other than what we're doing. I mean, our healthcare system. We like to profess that we've got the best healthcare system in the world. No, we don't. We don't. There was a day we did, but but we spend more as a percentage of GDP on healthcare 
And there are about eight or ten co- uh, countries that get better outcomes and spend much less oh. as a share of GDP. Yeah, 100%. Look, we have the best health care in the world if you can afford it. And if you can't afford it, you get it for free, but it's not really good for you. I agree. And so I, I am mean, worried, we, Jeff. You and I have agreed whoa, twice in one been... phone call. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I will say this uh, about uh, uh, John Kelly and his uh, – I'll leave you with this, Trump. Uh, what if he did say it? Mm. Don't make me answer that. We'll take a break. We'll be back. <laughs> we'll be back in just in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Let's stop with the nonsense for a second. Let's stop with the um with the politics and arguing and battle. Well, I mean, Jeff and I actually agreed um two times. And then he wow. tried to put me on the spot and I mean be, be the antagonist liberal that that or the antagonizing <laughs> liberal that he is. I want I want to talk for a second about something positive in our community and that is the um the yearly tennis tournament that mcleod for health has a big party in ernie james is a member of the mcleod tennis tournament committee he's with us this morning good morning mr james how are you uh good morning guys Glad so to be here. um so when i think of tennis tournaments i don't think of florence i think of some wimbledon and <laughs> flushing meadows and and some of the other places but we have gained quite the reputation for having a professional tennis tournament in our hometown. You are correct, Ken. This is part of what the USDA calls the USDA Pro Circuit. Uh, I like to tell people this is the minor leagues of tennis. Most people are familiar with minor league baseball. This is the tennis equivalent of that. And that starts when and and how can the community make sure that the tennis tournament and McLeod's Association is successful? Well, it starts next Monday morning with a qualifying round, just like any major tournament. They'll have people are qualifying to get an opportunity to play in the main draw. So that'll start next Monday morning, uh, about 8 o'clock, and uh, that will continue through the day. Then the main draw, the main draw 32 players, will start on uh, Tuesday afternoon and conclude with a finals match on Sunday afternoon at the Dr. Eddie Floyd Tennis Center. Okay, McLeod Health is I mean, obviously a health care facility. Their interest in raising awareness to women's breast cancer is a large part of, of this tennis tournament. Talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, the association with McLeod and why it's important to use this tennis tournament as a vessel to make or raise awareness of, uh, of breast cancer. Well, that's a great point, Ken. Uh, as all of us probably know, or if we don't, we should know, but October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So the fact that this tournament has been held now for nine years in October, uh, it was a natural partnership to create between McLeod hospital and the tennis tournament to again to raise awareness and any of the uh, proceeds um, that we earn go to mcleod foundation and they use that to help fund uh, mammography for uh, people who may not be able to afford that service the the quality of tennis i got i got hooked into playing in one of these uh, what is it a celebrity whatever <laughs> event and i mean i was embarrassed i mean it, it was like a missile coming back at me from a you know, a, a 16 or 17 year old female, <laughs> but I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, I, I told you, I played a little bit of high school tennis. These women are really, really good players. In fact, I think I read that some have gone on to, to make an impact at Wimbledon or the U S open. Uh, you are absolutely right. These are professional tennis players. These are young ladies who are aspiring to make tennis a career and a lifestyle. So they are good. A lot of them have played uh, major college tennis, Division One, Division Two college tennis. Others have come up kind of through the academies in Florida 
and the academies we have right here in South Carolina. But their aspiration is to make that big stage. And, in fact, we have had several players who have gone on. Uh, you may be familiar with the name Bianca Andrescu. Uh, she played here in 2018, won our tournament. In 2019, she won the U.S. Open. Is it fair to say that you can watch someone as a tennis enthusiast and say, better keep your eye on her? I mean, this, this won't be the last time you ever hear, hear her name. Oh, a- absolutely, absolutely. Our winner from uh, last year, uh, Ms. Stearns, uh, she is now ranked 46th in the world. Peyton Stearns won our tournament in October of 2022. She is now ranked number 46th in the world. So she played all the majors this year, the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. Mr. James, why? I mean, you're, you're very active in Florence Tennis Association. Yes, sir. How does this help your organization? I mean, obviously, this is about breast cancer. This is a professional tournament. I got to believe most people in the Florence Tennis Association ain't professionals. You know, they, they, they probably do the best they can to get from one court to the next. But why do you think it's important for someone such as yourself who is so invested in local tennis to be a part of this? Well, I think it's important because, again, it exposes our local community uh, to that high level of tennis. And I also think it can be very aspirational for some of our children. They're going to get a chance to see a professional athlete up close and personal for free. So you uh, you can't not take advantage of that opportunity. So I, we think it's a great thing for our tennis community. They can talk proudly. Uh, Florence has developed a great reputation, not only in South Carolina, but nationally. And events like this only help to uh, enhance that reputation. As a limited government conservative, <laughs> you question some of the things government does. But, but the government locally invested, made a big investment in the Eddie Floyd Tennis Center. How has that aided tennis in our local community? Well, the, the, the concept of economic impact. Uh, we are now able to host multiple tournaments throughout the year that bring in people from outside of the Florence area. And when they come from outside, what do they have to do? They have to sleep. So they're going to stay in one of our hotels. They have to eat. That means they're going to eat in one of our restaurants. They may want to do some shopping. They're going to shop in a local store. So the economic impact uh, to the Florence community from the Dr. Uh, uh, Eddie Floyd Tennis Center has more than paid for the cost of the complex. And in return, we get a great public space for our local citizens to enjoy. And this pro tournament highlights. Yes. those assets and resources. Let's go back, if you don't mind, in conclusion. The McLeod for Help Florence Open, when is it open to the public? Do they need to buy tickets or just show up? Walk me through logistically what happens next Monday. Okay, what happens? As I said, we start with the qualifying tournament. Uh, it's open to the public. Uh, we encourage the public to come out and watch because, again, you literally can be five feet off the court watching these matches, which at some point in time you're going to be paying a lot of money see some of these same women perform and that's from it starts on monday mm-hmm. and concludes it does it run the balance of the week or 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 what just just when will tennis be being played next week at the eddie floyd center uh basically monday through sunday okay uh there'll be a number of matches obviously it's uh you're familiar with being a tennis player there's a draw so it starts off with 32 it goes to 16 it goes to eight goes to four it goes to two and then it goes to one on sunday afternoon so the final will be Sunday afternoon. Yes, sir. And I would predict the finalist, one of the finalists will be a name to be reckoned with and remembered in the future. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Appreciate your time. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments.
843-661-0937 is our number. So let me get this straight. During okay. Jeff's call this morning, mm-hmm. I believe you said you might be for a single-payer health care system. I am so opposed to the current model that I'd consider anything. And I believe the current model is paid for and created by big pharma and the insurance companies. And I'm True. opposed to that. I don't know yeah. that the government needs to be in charge of health care. But big pharma and healthcare, big pharma and insurance companies certainly don't. So yes, I, I would consider any alternative to what we have today, including some sort of single payer system where the government was in charge, Medicare for all Medicare. I don't know what you want to call it, but, but the current model is owned. I mean, the, 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 the healthcare in America today was paid for by the consultants and lobbyists working for big pharma and the big insurance companies. And it didn't have the consumer as its priority. So if the government can create a model that has the consumer as its priority and serves the consumer in a fair and equitable and affordable way, then let's go there. Uh, And it's not that I trust government anymore today than I did yesterday. I don't. And and I guess what I'm arguing is government, big pharma, and big insurance companies, who do you trust more? Um, The answer is none. I mean, I don't trust (laughs) any of those. But, but, you know, at least I know, I mean, to me, big pharma and the big insurance companies are sheeps and wolves clothing. I know the, the government's a wolf and wolf's clothing and I can right. deal with it and I can deal with it accordingly. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Hartsville. Good morning. Good morning. How are you gentlemen doing? Hey, Tony, how are you? Great. Thank you. Just one quick question. I guess what I'm asking is why are you and me, I'm 71 years old and I'm retired why are we having to take care of people with welfare, food stamps, and all of this has never worked in having children, but we're the ones paying for it? Thank you. Have a blessed day. We shouldn't. I mean, that's absurd. We should do a better job of waste, fraud, and abuse. We should really and truly. I mean, I've looked at the number of people who consider themselves to be disabled. I told Jeff, and I, and I think Rebel agree, I'm for the safety net. I mean, if a hardworking man dies in a tragic accident 35 years ago, 35 years old, and they don't have any financial resources, I'm, I'm okay with government intervening. I mean, I'd love to live in utopia or paradise where the church intervenes and the church provides whatever it takes to sustain that family. But, but I just don't believe we're there. I don't think the church, I mean, the church would rather build buildings and, and have programs than they had, you know, concentrate on the, the humanity uh, part of this. But, but no, I mean, I'm, you know, Count me in on the 30-year-old dying in a, in a truck accident, and, and he's on his way to work at a sawmill or a, or a farm or a construction site. You can't leave that, that wife and three kids on the street. You can't do that. I mean, the government does have an, an, ultimate, an ultimate responsibility for the common good. So, so let's set aside a certain amount of money. But, but these people who go to the doctor and, and say, I'm disabled, and these film crews follow them around for the insurance companies and find out they're not disabled. We got to stop that nonsense. But, but when you really think about it, the concept of our government, one of the fallacies of government, one of the blind spots would be a better way to say it. Government believes that humanity is good and decent. I don't. I think it's always in conflict. I think humanity in general, you, you've seen the, the cartoon, Josh, Devil on this side of the brain, angel on that side of the brain. Yeah. I think everybody every day deals with that. Oh, yeah. And I think we've made it too damn easy to take the easy way out. 
we, we, we've allowed people to leach and fleece and live off and, and drain dry and bleed dry the resources of productive people in America. And we've got to get to a place where we reward productivity and we penalize people who aren't productive. I, I don't, I don't, you know, the, the, the 35-year-old perfectly healthy man who, who says I'm hurt but is really not, I mean, he doesn't deserve the same consideration of the widow of the 32-year-old guy going to work at a farm and he's got two. I mean, no, you can't put them all in that. And we got to do a better job of vetting and investigating and making sure that people are telling the truth. But, but I think government, I think liberalism in general, and, and this goes to my, you know, imagine John Lennon. Um, narrative. I mean, you know, imagine. I mean, imagine there were no borders. Imagine there's no heaven and no hell. Imagine everybody's good and decent. Imagine everybody is out for the betterment of mankind, and you'll get exactly what you deserve. I mean, that there are good people in the world. There are bad people in the world, and and this 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 I don't know this war that rages between good and evil. It's real, and it's um it, it's not exclusive to certain sectors of the economy and certain places of the world. I mean, it, it's, it's across the grain. Um, you know, I, they asked Jimmy Buffett one day, how can you write such a beautiful song as come Monday? And, and, you know, a month later, right? Why don't we get drunk? And, and he said, well, that's who I am. I mean, I can be a fine upstanding man at certain times and I can be, you know, quite the sleaze bag at other times. I think the, 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 the people who succeed most in life are the people who know what with every fiber of their being that they're suspect to failure just as anybody else is. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.